to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That would be through chapter 77, just after the part break into part four of Lightbringer by Pierce Brown. This is Cross. <laughs> I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers like we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I found that I found that voice. I didn't know what I was going for right away. <laughs> it came to it me. was crazy taxi. You did the crazy taxi narrator <laughs> voice perfectly. Yeah. Perfect. Funny. Could not could not have been better. All right, we've got a very special episode that we're doing today. I've been planning for this one for a while, and then 40 minutes beforehand, I had a great fucking idea that I can't believe I thought of. I didn't think of earlier, so we could have planned a little (laughs) bit more for it, but we made it work on a short turnaround. I think we made it work really well. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm very excited. But today is our 10th episode, and we'll be chatting about chapters 70 through 77 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer, wrapping up part three and then beginning part four. So very, very excited here. But before we get too much further, PJ, let's start with our featured cocktails. So I have a cocktail that I have named Ashvar. It is two ounces of aquavit. So it's essentially an aquavit sour or a cherry aquavit sour just to kind of try to bring in some, some Scandinavian ties and evoke some imagery of blood <laughs> and battle with the cherry. So two ounces of Aquavit, three quarters of an ounce of Maraschino's cherry. I don't have the bottle here, so I can't remember exactly. Basically cherry called. herring. But it, yeah. It, yeah, it's a Maraschino's version or a Luxardo's version, not Maraschino, Luxardo's version of cherry herring. So a really deep cherry flavor. One ounce of lemon juice. Three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup in egg white, and that's all dry shaken, add ice, shake it, and garnished with a speared cherry or an unworthy a, heart. A, an unworthy heart. So it it worked out really well. I don't have a ton of experience with Aquavid. I used one from Minneapolis, or I think technically Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, called Scalvin Distillery. It's there. Aquavit. It's really, really nice. It's basically like a gin, but with more herb and spice notes as opposed to botanicals and sort of fruit notes. I think that's the best way to describe it. There's definitely some anise in there, but it's very herby. You have gin anise? It's kind of the best way I can describe it if you haven't had Aquavit what? before. What do you have anise in your drink? Hey. So weird. Weird man. I don't know. What are you drinking after that? After that, I have Juicy Bits from Weldwork Brewing Company out of, where are they from? Greeley, Colorado. I'm in such a spirit right now that I almost started singing I Miss You off the bat. Where are you? Anyway, we're done. (laughs) Yeah. So that's their flagship IPA. And I think I've talked about it on the show before, so. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, we we had it like two or three times when I was in Minnesota. We kept like running into bars and it was there and we're like, oh, yeah, we're drinking that. So yep. <laughs> nice. Very, very nice. PJ, I'm having a lovely cocktail tonight, today, this afternoon, called Clang, 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 Confess, which is a rum cocktail, two ounces of rum, quarter ounce of Kirschwasser, which is a cherry liqueur as well, uh, quarter ounce of St. Germain, half ounce simple, egg white, shaken, bitters on top. So basically like a rum sour with a couple of different variables in there, similar to yours. I mean, not not that crazy. It's not like we're innovating, innovating a ton. But I would recommend garnishing with a little bit of edible metal flakes and get yourself that like little sheen and shimmer going on the drink. And it's so tasty. I did not expect this to be this good. Mm-hmm. That little nice. bit of Germain and uh, Kirschwasser actually really balance each other because the Kirschwasser has an almost like artificial cherry note. It would be better if I had like a hearing or something like that. But the St. Germain levels that out perfectly so that it, it works flawlessly. Awesome. So not herbal, but fruity instead of herbal. Mm hmm. Yeah, I I wanted to do something blue for Ashbar Mm -hmm. because of the blue painted armor, but I couldn't I couldn't figure out a way to get blue Curacao to work inside of this cocktail. So I I didn't I didn't do it. (laughs) It's totally fair. Mm -hmm. I definitely get that. Following that up, Tropical Lightning mainstay Wilmington Brewing Company. It's great. Nothing really to talk about beyond that. So. EJ, let's talk about the bonus round. The passage of stains. Our passage of stains. And Cross we're and doing I a passage of stains. Together make one. One passage. One stained obsidian. <laughs> so. So. Do you want to explain it? Basically, we are going to take half shots at the beginning of each chapter. Going down the list of colors. For gold, we have scotch. For silver, we have St. Germain. For white, we have Blanco Tequila. For copper, we have bourbon. For blue, we have blue Curacao. Yellow, we have banana liqueur. Green, we have green chartreuse. Violet, we have pea flower gin. Orange, we have Aperol. Gray, we have absinthe. Brown, we have Di Serono. Obsidian, we have Aquavit. Pink, we have grapefruit vodka. And red, we have... Irish whiskey. So each of us oh, has seven so of those. So it begins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we considered Dude, doing full shots. We considered it. That's <laughs> oh my god incoherence. I'm being I'm being outed. I'm being outed. Yeah, we wanted we wanted to remain people um, throughout the episodes. The goal was to not do too much, but do just enough to make it through the passage. Right? Like this has to be. This is a difficult difficult thing. Uh, Cross has vomited once on the show, only once, only ever once. Um, so we're not trying to repeat that incident. I have vomited because of this show a few times, but it's usually no, the next only, morning. Only the one time, only only the one time still, but just, it was horrifying. Just yep. hangovers in the morning once in a while. Also, to listeners in general we are recording this episode live so we will be interacting a little bit with the chat as relevant things come in so i apologize if we forget to be we'll a full to context, context of what we're can. saying but yeah we'll try but with a whole bunch of shots in us maybe that'll be more difficult yeah very excited so we've got our lineup we've got our cocktail our beer we probably won't refresh anything else because we have a lot to drink 
in front of us. So, yeah. EJ, with that, we're going to start talking about how'd you feel about this week's reading? I I was having so much fun, man. I so usually it takes me a couple sessions to read through the the first time. I couldn't stop. This gripped mm-hmm. me harder than almost anything I've read ever. I loved it. I, I really liked this yes. section. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's impossible to not love this section. Like this is absolutely ridiculous in every every sense of the word. I mean, it it changes the pace, the feeling of this novel in a way that nothing else feels like this. And it also changes the way I think that we can think about Darrow in by and large. Like it it there are a lot of different things that kind of draw feelings here mm-hmm. immediately. It's oh man. I to the point of Ivana in the chat, everyone has been waiting for this bit. I, in particular, was very excited for this, and I sectioned it out so that it would basically be the resolution of like the Volga arc. And I was like, "This is this was one of the biggest disagreements that Ben and I had about the pacing was around how to do this part." So I think that I personally believe that this was very <laughs> successful for our show. I mean, so- going into part four resolves Volga well, and so I think that that's a good place to end as opposed to where the part ends. It does, but, but it also <laughs> leaves questions up in the air. It doesn't. It doesn't fully Which is wrap what it up. Want. So yeah, yeah. So I know that everyone is very excited. <coughs> All the way back in the Howler Pod episode that we had recorded with Pierce, that I had helped record with Pierce and them, his mention was that they they asked for like one of your favorite scenes without context, and all he said was clang clang clang. <laughs> and I was like, "Fuck yeah!" <laughs> when I got here, I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> what?" What a section. So, yeah, I mean, we'll be ringing in my ears forever. This is such a unique section of fiction. It's brilliant. It's lovely. It's wonderful. I'm so excited. So we should let's let's just start talking about it. So with that, we're going to talk about these chapters. We're going to start chapter 70, Lyria, the passage of stains. PJ, what are we drinking first? What am I you drinking first? are drinking the... So we're going... We're going top of the pyramid down, but it it's not a super even split. We just kind of broke it up by how our liquor cabinets work. So Crossland is starting with gold, with scotch. What scotch do you have, by the way? This is a Lagavulin 10. Okay. Sounds good. I've got coppers, bourbon. I've got Willet straight whiskey. So, cool. Perfect. Cheers. Cheers. So you're drinking copper, I'm drinking gold? Yep. Cheers. Oh, so good. It only gets worse from here. <laughs> I get I to end on a high note with the, with the Irish whiskey. As a spoiler, I get yeah, red at, at the, the end. very least. At the very least. Yeah, I'm staring down some of these and I'm like, oh God. And for, I blew eventually here. And I did pour a full shot of blue curacao, which is not good. <laughs> Cool. All right. With that, we'll actually properly get into Chapter 70, Passages Stains. And what a way to start the week. I, I mentioned this last week, or I mentioned this to you off air. But we were talking about, like, should I include it? Should I not? It's six pages. It's six minutes. Or no, it's not six pages. It's two pages. It's six minutes. But it's so important to, like, leave with that sense of tension, I think, that this is just lovely. There's the Leviathan in the background being carved, juxtaposed with Volga not even flinching at ripping the heart out of the gold to start the page. Like, literally, 
one sentence in and Volga is already killing fuckers. Like, that's cool. It just utter violence. And I truly believe that Volga doing this is one of the more terrifying things that Pierce is depicted on page. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I she's so fucking cold at the beginning of this. And that kind of rocked me a little bit. I know at the end of last week, we were talking about how I had reservations and questions on whether or not she would go through with Lyria part. My guess, I think, was that she would try to kind of fake Lyria's death in it, in a way. Like she would she would be convinced and not actually kill Lyria, but the cold, <laughs> icy stare that she has throughout this beginning of this chapter really got me thinking I might be wrong. And I I figured I was holding the book. I'm like, there aren't that many pages left and we haven't had a real heartbreaking death yet. (laughs) And that's not the first time I, or that's not the only time I felt that way during this section. We'll get into that later. Hmm. It's the poison, the poison. Mm-hmm. That made me think like, all right, he's, we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. But... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, to kick it off to this chapter again, very short, but we immediately transition between this like line of dead people, the hearts being thrown in the fire exploding with the color of the heart as the shamans are kind of performing this ritual. I, I had kind of like a, a sub question. Do you think that this is generally what the passage of stains is? I don't know. Or a portion? I don't think so. Maybe it's a part of it. Maybe there's a part of it. But this feels more tailored to Volga specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, As somebody who's much more empathetic as we we know her. And Fa seems to really understand her and has gotten to know her. Understands that she loves animals and knows a lot about her. I don't think she's hidden from him who she is so i think this this is tailored to her specifically as a challenge yeah it is definitely tailored to her as a challenge and it's uniquely it, it feels like it's uniquely her but she's already done other challenges right which is where i think that this is maybe a part of the passage of stains on the whole for like all obsidians that go through it in the same way that like earning a peerless scar can be done in multiple ways this feels like it's like the the sort of ceremony to end a passage, if that makes sense. That's kind of my my assumed perspective. Mm-hmm. But we, we get through a lot of the wine. We make it all the way to Sigurd, of whom is there sitting, kneeling. And his death, man, fucking painful. It sucks because I think that comparatively, he's actually built up to be a great character over this portion of time and is like set up to like make us feel something. And it it stinks to see him die. I mean, I wish we would have gotten more, you know, before this point, another book or something to expand on that story a little bit. But like this is still so painful. And his final word being hail as well, screaming it out after saying that, like, he's clearly a puppet. All these other details is it sucks. To- totally. Completely. He's, great he's such a good guy. It's sad to see him go. Obviously, I am fairly conflicted on what I think of Darrow's role in this death, if there is one. He doesn't explicitly say that Sigurd needs to die here, um, but he does refer to them all as actors in his play, 
and I'm curious about future implications of his death in this. Um, if he even potentially knew about it with that evocation of Hail Reaper that got cut short, I, I don't know. It's going to be really touchy, potentially, going forward. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I do agree with you. I definitely understand. It has this sort of sentiment that makes it feel like he's a little bit complicit in, in the death, one way or another. I mean, especially if we compare it to um, two weeks ago when we were talking about all the different speeches and the way that he, like everyone before they die, was basically calling for him one way or another. This is just a reminder of that, right? This is exactly reminiscent. How many people in their dying breath are calling Darrow's name as sort of their their savior, their hope? Yeah. Right? That hasn't Ooh. changed. <clears throat> Not even slightly. But then, of course, she comes to Lyria. Volga immediately has difficulty in the moment seeing her sister, seeing this history and understanding what she's becoming. Lyria stutters out that she doesn't have to be like this and calls her Ephraim's daughter and the gauntlet slips from her grasp. I'm, I'm so glad <laughs> that Lyria decided to evoke Ephraim in this moment to get to her. It felt nice. It felt, it felt heartwarming, even though there is a line of 13 bodies leading up to that. <laughs> yeah, right. Heartwarming as she's torn out these hearts yeah. and thrown them into a fire. Okay. Yep. But mm -hmm. it did feel really good that Ephraim is the one that gets through to her. Right. And Larry, like there, there is this like larger understanding, but it is like very True. clearly you denied him previously. This is you turning around, facing it, realizing that this is your friend. This is your family. The other things don't mean nearly as much to you, even though you might imply otherwise. So that's all of that, you know, turns itself into a larger, nicer story. Mm hmm. For the pair of them. The sort of yeah. It it's also great because of what happens next, right? The fact that she chooses to drop the gauntlet before what goes on with the Leviathan, I think that that's massive because it's not her submitting to fear or anything else. I talk about this a lot with Tactus more often than not. I'm, this is not the first time that I'm gonna, I'm gonna mention Tactus this week, but Tactus feels like he turned because he had to to some degree, and maybe there's a degree or rationale of like it wasn't just sort of the force of the moment or like the feelings there, but this feels like she made the emotional decision before the, the gaunt, the, the glove dropped. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that the hammer fell. So it's very emotionally rewarding versus I think Tactus's falls a little bit flatter for me, or I don't believe it by comparison. So, mm -hmm. but just moments Later, after that, Darrow, Cassius, and Severo crawl out of the viscera of Syraxes, the dead Leviathan. And it's Dead Horses Round 2, baby. Oh, man. <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, love, I love Lyria's description of it being like a demon being born. Um, mm -hmm. Which I don't think this is the first time... Severo has been referred to as a demon. Definitely uh, not. Definitely yeah. not. But I, I, I don't think it's even the first time he's been referred to as a demon or as a demon by Lyria. Mm -hmm. 
potentially. Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember. Exactly, I think but. like little devil and there are some other like terms. But yeah, generally speaking, there's yeah. a lot of, yeah, that floating around Severo. <laughs> this little goblin guy. Little, little goblin guy. There's also a note here that I think of, which it reminds me immediately of the Odyssey again. And so much of this text feels very inspired by the Odyssey, that this reminds me of the scene where Odysseus is escaping on the belly of the sheep from the giant after he's been blinded. And he's kind of hanging on to the underside to make it out. It's sort of the opposite version of that scene, but it's still reminiscent of it. If that yeah. makes sense, he's sneaking in on the underbelly versus out. But and inside versus on. Yeah, I mean, right. It's relative. dead versus alive. It doesn't need to be. A, it doesn't need to be. It's a more Trojan thing. horse than anything. Like it's. But yeah, yeah. I mean, still Iliad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still Homer. We're pulling from the same story threads. Right. Actually, what's what's interesting, I believe uh, I was researching this the other day because I was pulling together a bunch of information. The Trojan horse actually isn't mentioned in the Iliad or the Odyssey. It is mentioned in the Aeneid, of which completes the details of how it fell. So Hmm. it is Virgil that writes first about the Trojan horse, not Homer. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I didn't either. That's why I was like, I was shocked. I did not remember that at all. Mm-hmm. in my own head so i believe that there are many translations that now include further details that expound upon why they're able to enter and why the wall falls and then but the aeneid captures a different side of the story which includes like the death of achilles and other things like that beyond just like calling it out so I believe it's pronounced achilles uh, important to remember that like achilles sorry i'm so sorry i said it wrong achilles achilles <laughs> i'm going to achilles I don't know where the closest the Aeneid was I, I kind of a Roman self-insert fanfic. Hmm. I don't think I'm missing <laughs> much. I, I'm sure. I've been to one Chili's. <laughs> it's not that we want to start down that train. Applebee's, but but technically not, basically, right? But like kind of Tex-Mex was like a theory for a while, and then they didn't really go that way. But All right. <laughs> it became more like Applebee's. Anyway, regardless. That's the end of the chapter, baby. But man, mm. can you imagine ending last week on that note? Like, I would have loved to have ended with the passage of stains with Lyria sitting there waiting to die, maybe. And then ending right there would have been the place. So not reading the last paragraph. But uh, man, that last yeah. paragraph. Yeah. Like that- as a TV episode, <laughs> if we're formatting this, ending with Lyria facing down death is the way to go. Yeah. And the stomach roiling. And then you start the next episode with the stomach bursting. You get your big battle scene. It'd be great. Yeah, this this whole section felt very cinematic. And I'll oh, yeah. definitely bring that up a few different times throughout. This is so visual and visceral. It's mm-hmm. it's great. All right. With that, we move into chapter 71. Darrow, Ashvar, what the fuck are we shooting now? <laughs> Crossland has silver. We went with St. Germain this is for that. This is St. Germain. <laughs> Oh, God. I have green chartreuse for green. Ooh. I also, I, I know we have shots. This one shots. is a full shot, by the way. We have shots on every, almost every episode, but I don't, I almost never have shots otherwise. I own one right. shot glass. Crossland had all those party shot glasses. Um, but I, I have only ever used this UAE shot glass that Bill got for me after Our buddy. he was there. And that's the only shot glass that I own. <laughs> so I have to pour them. Very. Crossland has them all laid out already. So I'm, I apologize for 
dragging us down a little bit as far as speed yeah. goes. But okay. UAE, what was our reasoning course, for they... for Saint Germain? I think you decided on that for silver, but I don't I don't remember so, your rationale. Our our plan was to do something that feels like ritzy, right? So like something that feels like it is sort of sparkly in a positive way. Or like, you know, something that reflects like, oh, I'm sophisticated. And so that's why we went with St. Germain for silver. St. Germain has a very nice bottle. It's very ornate. It does. It looks yeah. great. It does look PJ, great. what are you shoot? What color are you shooting? And what? Green. Green chartreuse. Green chartreuse. Oh, God. Yeah. It's not the worst right, one well, I've got. No, it's true. Good luck. Have fun. Might only get worse from here. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Ah, all right. Cool. With that. I know someone asked video coming later. No, it's just this. We're not, we did not record video. We're not. We did not plan for this. Too far ahead. Yeah, we, and planned. we won't convert probably to a video podcast until maybe best served cold. Probably the first three first law books. We might start experimenting, but we're not there yet. So mm. cool. All right. With that, we're into chapter 71 Darrow Ashvar. There's something really important for me here that I've been wanting to talk about to you specifically with you about for a long time but there and i almost wanted to like just mention it at the top of the episode we'll talk about it now instead because it's relevant to the chapter but to me this plot twist this whole thing is almost like an authorly redemption arc for pierce it's like hey if it would have been it's it's like him talking to us saying hey if it would have been feasible to juggle perspective in morningstar to better obscure the twist i would have right this feels like to me this is everything that I wanted out of that Morningstar twist manifested mm-hmm. on page perfectly. Yeah, that's a great point. And I I agree with you. I think mm-hmm. um, in that line of thinking, I'm going to flip this script on you a little bit and be the one that asks a question. Assuming the plot itself stays the same throughout the first trilogy, but additional perspectives are added. Or or stories told with additional perspectives. Who who would be those perspectives? What characters? Oh God! In general, for the whole story, for the first thr- for the first trilogy. Whoa. Okay. Ragnar. Hmm. Okay. Cassius. Okay. Those are the I perspectives like I would choose. Yep. Not Octavia or anyone on. Well, I think Cassius is the is the sort of betrayer right because he's on yeah, the other side for a lot good of the point. story so good point yeah. roke in that sense could have been really cool too roke as well yeah i roke was in in my head but i feel like cassius also because he continues into the second series could also be excellent right so aja? that's, that's kind of why i thought cassius aja could she would be interesting in the same way that i wish that we had an atlas perspective right like because it would be fascinating to kind of see that breakdown mm-hmm. um, what about lysander as a child Lysander as a child is my like fourth and I do think in the same way that the sequel series benefits from it having Virginia you know as a perspective is like an automatic mm-hmm. yeah so Fitchner yeah. could be could be really cool too it would be a very <laughs> different book well yeah and just just to make it very clear in a TV show format I think that the Morningstar twist works way better um, the moment that this gets converted to a TV show or a movie Morningstar lands perfectly. It just doesn't quite land ideally in the format that it's in. I I still love it, of course, and I love it and I believe in it and whatever else, but it it does feel just the slightest bit underhanded comparatively. Mm-hmm. Book one with yeah. a several POV would be 
really cool. Um, so good. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's very clearly a lot that happens off page that we mm-hmm. potentially still don't even know about. So, right. Book one needs will benefit the most from a TV series as I think book as well as Morningstar will benefit from a TV series because realistically that should be two seasons of a show. But mm-hmm. I digress. But getting into the chapter itself, finally, what a moment when they emerge from the center of this beast. We get all the gory details as they are swallowed by the Leviathan in their different pods and everything that kind of occurs on that side, this this sort of gory detail as they're submerged here. And he is, I think, in a massive way, triumphant in his emergence outside of this body. Several holds everyone still with the dart and Faw's chest and a detonator in the little goblin's hands, which allows for Dara to properly issue the right of Ashvar drawing the cold line of tear on his forehead. I I love how this strong sense of honor, which is I mean, it, it's it's present in multiple places. It's it's present in the obsidian and it's present in the rim gold. And it's used now as kind of a tool against Fa in this section. And it is as much action as it is political maneuvering and the way Fa is unfazed by this little blow dart warhead is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, yeah, I don't care. What are you going to do? picks his teeth with it later when it gets turned off. Mm-hmm. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's intimidating because it reinforces the image that Fa is very intimidating on the outside. I'm curious um, given knowing how Faw is on the inside and like the sort of Atlas man and the way that he presents himself, did you have any, did you experience anything that felt like disingenuous inside of this whole section or anything feel? He's so theatrical that I think that's hard to tell because sure. what he presents to the Obsidian and this is theater for him and he assumes he's going to win because why wouldn't he? He has everything stacked in his favor. I don't immediately notice anything that's thrown a red flag in that sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I agree with you for the record. There was a lot of sort of trepidation around Fa being like a softy thespian secretly. A lot of people got mad online about it. <laughs> in, no, in I don't form. think he's a softy. And though. I so I, disagree. I, 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 he he has that side soft. and he he yeah. would embrace that as his yeah. his true self. Hoity toity, great word, Kev. But similar like he, he seems to me, given the opportunity and given freedom to really be who he wants to like who he would want to be in a military sense, I think he'd be very similar to Apollonius. Fair. But yeah. he doesn't Actually, he's not afforded that opportunity. He has to play the role that he finds himself within and does not want to be in war. And which is like, neither did Lorne and he's not a a wuss because of it. He's not a, a like actionless philosopher because that's what he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody yeah. outside of the- war. Like it, 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 his true self <clears throat> I don't think is I don't think it takes away from how he presents himself. Yeah, I agree with you by and large, right? Like and I think especially the text agrees with you as well. 
a little bit later when like Daryl reflects on the idea of like who would he be and I think that that like immediately compares him in my mind to Tactus and we'll get there or like the potential that he could have been or Roke in a very different situation like who would he be if he was raised a little bit differently so it's -hmm. very interesting yeah and to Ivana's point here Atlas's love of theater used in real life absolutely like this is I mean, they're actors by and large, right? Like they're responsible or they feel responsibility to a larger cause, but they're willing to put on whatever face, sometimes literally, that it requires to get the job done. So fucking scary. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But this whole thing almost goes sideways as Fod denies, denies his right denies. to Ashvar. Denies. He denies his right to Ashvar. <laughs> despite him being an adopted son of the obsidians dear morga on the ice caps we've spoken about previously again giving a lot of weight to that moment in morningstar which is fantastic to like call back properly which is something that i don't know if i think that the first two books really leaned into this book feels like the world connecting in a big way like the whole series connecting with the spine and this is one of those moments that reinforces that to me Dara looks for any singular person to recognize him among all of the Braves, the Volk, the leaders, and Scarta the Betrayer, the slime ball that fought Darrow a couple of chapters back, stands up for him, his claim, with his son on the ground at Fa's daughter's feet, his heart thrown into the fire. It is such a big moment, and I really like its depiction from his perspective. This is the single biggest payoff of the potentially intentional I've got an asterisk to that, but potentially intentional allowance of Sigurd's death. Mm -hmm. And I can't help but think that Sigurd, or that, not Sigurd, Skarde, may have still spoken up to Darrow, Mm -hmm. or for Darrow, if Sigurd had been spared, if if Darrow had popped up 30 seconds sooner. Um, For the exact opposite reason. Like, I, I think... I think Darrow's timing is irrelevant. Yeah. The more I right. think about it, that the fact that Sigurd was up in line is enough to motivate Scar Day to, to speak action. out against yeah. Fa. Right. Regardless of if Sigurd wins or survives or dies. It just makes it a lot stronger with a dead kid as motivation and and it uh, yeah it it gives more weight to scarday's words um speaking mm-hmm. about speaking out about against this now or speaking out about this now instead of just before his son got killed there there's weight there and it, yeah into yeah. the degree that he does where he Scarda almost comes off in his speech like a lawyer. Like he is very totally. much he's he's speaking grandiloquently. He's taking his time. It's very considered compared compared to the way that he felt kind of rushed and like very brash before. Like he hadn't thought about it with just Darrow and like talking to him and not believing that he's Tyr Morga proper. This is like him interrogating the facts and interrogating reality. And that's why I love Scarta's speech so much that he gives inside of this is it just feels so wonderfully measured, which mm-hmm. is not something that you necessarily expect 
from obsidians by like base or by like their class and rule. This feels so calculated, and I love that. Yeah, and th- that's not the last time that Sigurd does some lawyering within this section. Skarda, but yeah, or Skarda. We, we've mixed we mixed the names up a couple. Of times, I know. But yeah, Sigurd's I, dad, Skarda's alive. Yep. Not you. It's me. Skarda as well. Yeah, Skarda. So good. I. I genuinely, I think it almost goes like brushed over how well that's represented here and how much it shows that also colors reach outside of their bounds more than like the hierarchy ever respected them to. Mm-hmm. And that's expected because this is the Volk. This is not the Republic or the society. So there are very different sort of culture. They around. need so they need to represent the full breadth of society within the Except single for the color. women because they don't represent the women which is a whole thing later but i just mean they, yeah. they can't rely on copper yeah. lawyers no and, right right yeah they need to have a more uh, liberal arts le- education amongst <laughs> the obsidian <laughs> when he goes like i'm no shaman but <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. the, it's the best like actually basically it's it's so rewarding from a from a speech writing perspective. I I just love it. Which is yeah, it was Sefi's wish, right? Like that is that they should be more diverse. Like everyone should have the ability to do everything. It's her. You say wish, I would say dream. Just to reiterate, kind of the theory that I have with the series that there are these different dreams that are manifesting. But yeah, it it totally, mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. So. Fa reluctantly submits to the request of Ashvar in the end, dons a smile as he's allowed to choose all of the circumstances. He chooses honorable weapons, he chooses a dome, and chooses a full metal panoply. Can you imagine, just as he starts to smile and go through his choices, the fade-in of some metal guitar, and then right as he finishes full metal panoply... Cut to black credits roll with like heavy metal playing in the background for this this adaptation TV show. If you're going the boys like for sound and like everything else, yes, for sure. I don't necessarily imagine it as the boy like that. No, sort of, like, no, but, but but I, I do get it. It doesn't have to be actual metal, but but something something evocative of that sort of angry battle music. I imagine it being like sort of the obsidian throat singing that we've talked about previously, right? Like that would be, that would be like the sort of deep, like metronomic kind of like chest pumping thing. Mm -hmm. And then like, it could go into like sort of the metal harder sound, I think during the credits. But yeah, Yeah. I would imagine this being like a raw war cry, um, war chant, and then into something that's more full throated. I had, I had so many like, audio cues in my head when i was reading through Mm -hmm. this this feels very much like a almost ready for transcription to to screenplay writing style throughout this entire section yeah it's just so it's so fun so fun all right with that we get into the next chapter here chapter 72 darrow full metal panoply is, our third is it Panoply or Panoply? I, I think it's Panoply. Okay. I don't know panoply. the word. Yeah. I did I did say Panoply the first time, but I believe it's Panoply, and I believe that that is also the way that TGR says it. That makes sense. Crossland is drinking 
white tequila. So tequila. I am drinking oranges. April. 40 is the new 21. <laughs> this is a cheers. regular shot of this. So mm-hmm. cheers. Okay. I think this is a like, this is a large shot glass. I have very large hands. This is a, this is a large shot glass. So These are the I'm same size shot this. glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the same glasses. Yeah. Okay. For the record, what I drank was a blue agave spirit. Not technically a tequila, but it is a blue agave spirit because it was produced in not in Mexico, United States. Correct. Okay. Are there any other countries that produce blue agave? That can grow blue agave other than I don't know. Mexico and the U.S.? I'd be curious. I would assume that a number of African countries could. Yeah, probably. But do they? Similar. I don't think so, but I would assume that they could. But anybody um, on the yeah. latitude could. But Yeah, there's, there's like a latitude range. Yeah. So I would assume, honestly, like Egypt would be like that band is really the assumption. Mm-hmm. I digress. With that, let's get into the full metal panoply. I love how this chapter opens with them geared up and in the dome, ready to go. We get this sort of almost understanding of their full gear, Faw's spiked armor, Darrow's god killer armor in that mode. It's so sick. Cassius, like a boxing coach, is sitting there with Darrow, giving him advice. Darrow is like, come on, I fucking know that. I don't need like your coaching here. Believes him to be entirely naive. And then Cassius reveals a lot of the whys. And so then that's when Darrow kind of turns and faces him. He's like, oh, yeah, duh. Like, I didn't actually think about those things. I didn't consider this. It wasn't as measured. And again, it reiterates to me at the very least that I believe that Cassius is the best Razor Master in the solar system. It's mm-hmm. this sort of like a circle is perpetual. All of these different thoughts that show that, A, Razor Master to Razor Master, big deal. But why I believe that Cassius is number one starts here. Cassius comes off as wonderfully animated and funny, comedic, <laughs> amazing. Darrow's surprise at the not actually trivial lesson that he's being given sets up a really cerebral fight. Um, in general, the beginning yeah. of this fight comes across for me. It it makes me think equally of a medieval flight specifically the the duel in the last duel mm-hmm. and very similar a boss fight in elden ring or dark souls like equally Ooh, equally set yeah up. yeah yeah mm-hmm. or equally uh pulled upon so yeah. yeah when you when you when you walk through that white fog in any yeah. proper soulsborne game you get that brief flash where you see the armor and you see the person either donning it or touching it or like picking up their weapons slowly. And this very much has that feel. That's a great call. I hadn't thought mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Yeah. Thaw, similar to one of those cutscenes that we're talking about, gives a bit of a speech. And as the actor that we know him to be, he understands the importance of this show. And to him, I think he believes that this functionally is a performance. This is a show. Because he believes himself to be in complete control. But Darrow instead... Deck is stacked. Yeah. Darrow goes cold. He holds his two razors, Badlass and Pyrophoros, in his hands at the ready. He offers the opportunity for him to confess. And he denies in this moment. He denies reality. 
Darrow clangs his metal swords together in what will undoubtedly become a refrain that defines this moment. And by and large, the back part of this book and this whole sequence that we see, clang, 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 confess. Motherfuckers. Yeah. So good. It's good. It's refrain is a good way to put it. When I first read through these notes, I thought maybe it's a good idea to drink for this because that's the name of your drink. And then we decided mm-hmm. on the uh, passage of stain. So we passage. don't have to. Yeah. But if <laughs> if you want, I just finished my cocktail, but I've got juicy bits right here. If you want to take a drink for it. I know how often I mentioned clang, clang, clang in these. Not, not, all, not all of them. Just for the f- this first one. For the first one? Okay. Cheers. All right. Clang, clang, Cheers. clang. Confess. We do say we we will say it a lot. Yeah, it's, it's sure it's unavoidable. It's it's insurmountable. It tackles so many different components. It is so critical to the evaluation of this chunk. It's so good. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. This is this is part of why I was so glued <laughs> to this book. My first mm-hmm. read through, I I was hooked just from from this intro of this fight, and it it is truly one of the most fun reading sessions, if not the most reading session that I've ever experienced. It's definitely the most reading session you've ever experienced. So much reading in this session, most, most fun. You you skipped did fun. I miss, the second time. Did it's I, fine. Did I miss I'm fun? just making fun of you. Yeah. No, no, no. I, okay. I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> it was so much reading. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. When I was sitting in, again, we're, we're still living. <laughs> I hate that I keep having to bring this up because I did have to finish the book in this coffee shop. But when we're in the coffee shop, I practically fist pumped <laughs> when this is going on. So I was sitting in this little corner of the coffee shop and I was so excited for the entirety of this section. So mm-hmm. I've been sending you now that we're closer to the end of the book, my some screenshots and I'll post them in the discord for folks, of course, of whom are patrons and for everyone here. But I, I did take some pretty good notes while I was in the coffee shop specifically on these different sections. And I've been sending you the ones that I don't think are spoilerific by any means, but I, I was fucking excited <laughs> when we got to this part i took a lot of notes ivana so, threw a yeah, water bottle against a wall at this point did you nice. throw your coffee against the wall for, no but uh, I, it was, I was baristas to clean up in the coffee shop pj i i believe fundamentally let's talk about coffee shop etiquette for just two seconds <laughs> not gonna go that long i promise if you're in a coffee shop you need to buy something every hour every hour okay. that is a minimum like because you're occupying a table. The table can be occupied by other people that are coming in and out. They might not choose to sit there. And other people are probably going to buy everything, one thing every hour, right? So while there, I started with an Americana. Then I got a, I hadn't had food yet that day. So I got a muffin. And then I got a shot of espresso. Then I got a cold brew. And that was plus, plus or minus like a couple of other things that like span time. There was another, I bought one other snack. I forget what it was, but you have to buy something every hour. And so while I was reading the book, important. But at this point, I had had so much goddamn coffee in me that I was so excited. And there was this guy that was that sat down next or close by, like one booth down. And he hadn't 
botany thing, but he threw out his laptop. He was taking a phone call, which is ridiculously bad inside of a cop. Like you can take a phone call. Don't take it loudly. But if you're in a coffee shop, it was very loud, very obtrusive. So I switched from listening to Tim Gerard Reynolds to reading in this moment. And uh, yeah, yeah, fuck. I don't know. Etiquette. Last One time I had, so the coffee shop that we went to every single day in Boulder Junction for my wedding, mm-hmm. there was a day oh, yeah. over like New Year's where we lost power at Kaylin's parents' house. So I worked my day of work at that coffee shop and probably pretty close to once an hour i got something so but That's not like intentionally right just because i felt yeah. awkward i was sitting in that back like little bar it's section to make you not feel that. awkward like that's the whole reason that you yeah. do it is because like i'm not taking your space i'm trying to make sure that you're paid i'm enjoying it here we are mm-hmm. i don't i yeah. i don't remember exactly what i got or if it was actually every hour or it's just a good rule what, of thumb whatever it was Enough to make me not feel awkward about it, but there was a guy that took a video call <laughs> two oh, seats down from me, <laughs> very loudly. That and there's awkward. nothing wrong with taking a video call so long as you are polite. And you can inform other people, like, hey, I'm going to take, like, there are ways to be reasonable. I don't know. He didn't. Yeah. Having spent it's fine. eight months exploring coffee shops and everything else along the way, like, yeah, there are ways, there mm-hmm. are things to do and there are things not to do, so... Anyway, <laughs> side tangent about coffee shops aside, bah, can't hear rule of thumb without thinking boondock. Yeah, it's fair. It's, yeah, I get it. Boondock Saints is pretty great. But getting back to the story, Fa largely responds in kind, wielding the name of Ragnar as a weapon back at Darrow. The assembled obsidians roar in response as Darrow clang, clang, clangs again and asks for that confession. Darrow finds himself trapped in a familiar set of moves, defaulting back to the Willow Way. And he truly didn't think that this giant hulking brute of a half-iron-jawed Terminator-like man would be so fast or know his default style. But he quickly realizes that that is the case. Because of course he does. He's Atlas's brainchild. We'll, We'll get into that a little bit more later. But naturally, he goes in for a strike. Lodges Badlass in Fa's armor, but also gets stabbed by one of the spikes, poisoning our boy Dara. Yeah, this is that other moment where I started to think, all right, maybe maybe we've got a character death coming. Oh, didn't think Dara would lose, but I thought maybe he would die after killing Fa after this poisoning happened. It, I think it made sense to me. We already talked about the the amount of pages left. It's almost the end of a part. There's one part left that sets up everybody coming to terms with his death and sets up the Red God seventh book name as something more religious than it is tangible. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So like, it, I thought maybe that could be... A place where Darrow could die in a very conceivable way. Almost the end of the book. And there's enough really rich perspectives that we would still mm-hmm. have an amazing story without him in an entire second book. But, yeah. Yeah, I get I get that terror for sure. I definitely understand. 
because it could make sense. And he is something that is otherworldly. And the path to the veil leads us to this idea that there is something after and that you can represent more in all of these different things. And of course, we kind of know that from like the dream of EO and also the we know that from the dream of EO. We know that from the dream of Volga. We know or not Volga from Steffi. We know that from all of these different understandings of people's ideals and what they see and paint themselves looking in the future, the dream of Fitchner, everything else. So it does feel like he could pass and the change would still happen because he is that that dead martyr that would live on for the next thing inside of everyone's minds. And in some ways, it already feels like he is that because even when he's so far away, getting back to the jail cell cube moment that we have earlier on with Athena, like he is that for people already, even though they've never met him, right? And Cassius gets that later in Stoneside as well, where like everyone's heard of you. Everyone knows my boyhood story of us being in the fucking institute and me being a little moby sack of shit and you going and stealing the flag. Like there are these important moments that people realize and talk about at bars that are about you. And that's so interesting from a larger story perspective. Like he is he is stretched far outside of his normal bounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. With that, chapter 73, Darrow, the Breath of Stone. Side note, I am so glad that I can talk normally for the first time all week. I finally feel good. I didn't think about that today. I don't feel sick. I'm still a little nasally, but I don't feel sick for the first time in two weeks, which is great. Nice. That is great. Yeah. Happy yeah. for you. you. Know what I'm realizing yeah. right now? What? We miscounted the number of chapters. We did a little bit. So our final chapter will not have a color drink associated which with makes it. sense because the idea of like drinking and talking about it like we don't need a thing yeah. for that one you it's know all good yeah, yeah. that's true yeah. this what is... color crossland has yeah. blue curacao oh god this is the big one clearly Folks. for blue i have absinthe for gray and we chose that because it felt like the the closest uh relationship to to zoladone as we could find it's an ephraim shout out if there was ever an ephraim shout out yep all right Cheers. this is my worst one yeah easily this is also my worst one on the sweet side of things and garbage and it's a lot so here we go cheers oh ugh. not pleasant i would rather have taken the absinthe shot i'm gonna be honest it's a lot of absinthe. it's like sweet garbage <laughs> It tastes like the worst part of mouthwash. You know what I mean? Like Ephraim. the worst part of Listerine. Pour one out for Ephraim. Indeed. We did pour one down for Ephraim. Also one, one for down Orion. My throat for Ephraim. <laughs> yeah, me for Orion. If I was if I was sitting somewhere where I could just pour liquor out, I would. <laughs> but I am on carpet right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that will not work well. All right, with that, we get into one of, God, it's so, it's so hard to, like, reasonably talk about this chapter. I've broken it down as best as I can. I know that we, like, in general, it can be tough for us to talk about action just because it is so, it's so about the moment. It's so about what's going on. It's so immediately contextual that you understand based on the reality of the situation, right? Like, you get it based on what's there. But there's a lot here that I love that is outside of that. So we're it's going to be kind of a mixed bag as far as tackling this. But this is my favorite chapter of the section that we have to talk about. So 
We're talking about it's chapter good. 73, Darrow, the Breath of Stone. Darrow, ever the thinker, has built himself a counter to the poison as he assumed it would be poisoned based on his experience with Atlas via Diomedes and understanding what happened to him in taking that sample that we had mentioned earlier on. The blood leech helps, but ultimately it's still getting to him. It's still causing nausea. It's still slowing him down a little bit. It's not nearly as bad as Fob believes it to be where it's going to kill him in the end, but it, it continues to hinder him a little bit here and there. Fight continues, and what a spectacular bout of combat that this is. It becomes clear after a couple of exchanges that Fawn knows the Willow Way and understands how to counter it, and that is going to be a problem for Darrow as this fight continues. Yeah, it's it's finally great to see somebody that we care about be saved by a leech. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> good, good, good. This fight we don't goes care about really that, was, that was the bit. Though. Yeah, that was the bit that. Yeah, yeah. Do I get do I get points on the internet for saying Lysander bad? <laughs> you do. You do. <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> this fight goes really fucking hard mm-hmm. from the jump. It's ah, it's so good. It's so good. It feels so good. It is so good. It is so good. It, man, I, I, part of me is always like talking about combat makes the most sense after you get the whole scene. So maybe we'll talk about that, like culmination of things when we get to the end here. But again, this all feels so perfectly adapted for screen or intended for screen. Like this is very clean. There is some like internal philosophy things here, which I think actually relates itself less to the way that we consider like modern live action adaptations. And either lends it to more of like a Dune sensibility of like the Dune adaptation or like a general anime like thought process where it's like I'm thinking through the things and I'm internalizing it and then externalizing it. It's tough to say specifically, but each of those feel pertinent inside of the moment. Darrow ends up retrieving bad blasts from Fa's armor and then something strange happens. There's this briefest breeze and cold air that awakens Darrow as he's hit with that from the outside of the dome. He recounts a small passage from the path of the veil before adopting a new stance that he wields for the rest of the combat. He's awoken. Yeah. In that moment. Throughout this section, I really couldn't believe how caught off guard I was in this in this very climactic fight this was like a surprisingly climactic fight Mm -hmm. and i i think we were in the dark about the thing quote unquote the plan that they had and distracted by lyria and of course i'm i'm assuming there's going to be more fighting there are a lot of adversaries left on the table yet but i Really loved how this kind of came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Did did it feel like that in the coffee shop? Is it just the it, way it, that we broke down the, it did the have chapters? That feel no, I I agree with you. I I felt like it like the duel felt like I wasn't planning for it. Right, like I was like, how are you going to take down Fa? Right, and so that right. was kind of the thought process. And then you get the dead horses moment. You're like, holy shit! Like, is are the three of them just going to like carve through an army? Like what's what's about to happen? Then it comes down to this sort of ritualistic duel and you're like, oh, okay. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. it is unanticipated, but very satisfactory. But it also still feels like 
the boss fight of the book. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, and it you is didn't a boss expect fight. it, or I didn't right. expect it. I didn't expect it to come so soon. No. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. What's crazy is, is that we have to remember that there is like resolution coming for a lot of this, right? Like Fair. we are in some regard approaching an end, which yeah, is the true. first, like this is, Pierce has said explicitly that he is not planning another series after this within Red Rising. Like he's not going to continue that part of the story immediately. Like maybe, maybe there'll be something down the line. Maybe some other ideas will happen, but this is intended to be the end of this saga so this is the beginning of wrapping up plot threads which yeah. is wonderful and i think it's executed perfectly yeah for sure coffee shot me though was with you i was like whoa this is not what i thought mm -hmm. yeah and again we're going to spread this out over weeks but i read this over the course of four hours and we're going to talk about it over the course of eight hours the next four episodes three episodes <laughs> three left Ooh left we're gonna talk about it over uh, 12 hours but you're gonna hear like eight probably right or <laughs> yeah eight seven or eight somewhere in there so there's another clang 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 confess and a head tilt from fa to sell that this is bound to be unusual by all accounts this is this is going to be a very different sort of fight for the both of them as they're pushed to their own emotional and acting brinks yeah. on either side this clang, clang, clang is so, like, it gets me so it's jazzed every time refrain. it comes up in the book. Yeah, I, I get so it's excited so over it. Yeah. yeah. That was probably very loud on the recording, but I don't care. It's no, so good. It's fine. This is so cool. And the way, like, I, okay, I, you still can't listen to it. You're not there yet. But we did a wonderful job, and Ben and Aaron did a lovely job in our wrap-up episode, including, and, like, their wrap-up episode without me um talking about clink clink clang so good in the way that they like added like the emphasis and did all that it's it's a powerful episode folks if you can get gone and listen to it make sure that you go and listen to howlerpod of course i haven't as of yet listened to any of the hail reaper episodes can't wait to i just didn't want them to influence my read of the the series or the, this so no, the Kirschwasser was not water at all. It's it, what Kirschwasser must mean like cherry water. I'm imagining that's the words. It's alcohol, but. Oh, God, send help. Anyway, Darrow states explicitly that Faw is the best obsidian that he's ever faced. He begins to peel off the spikes of armor one at a time with his razor at a distance. Darrow becomes something else, a storm, a wind carving through this combat as though he isn't even there himself present in the moment. He's possessed, and it's entirely different than the rage he's fought with or the Willoway's cautiousness. It's new. It's his. Yeah, I expected, at, not at this point, but at, at some point, to, um, to learn that Darrow's been working on a new stance after the Willoway mm -hmm. was broken or revealed to have been broken. I had no idea that it would be something that was just uh, organically flowing out of him. I assumed it would be something that he was working on with Cassius during those sessions, the, the training sessions. But um, I love this reveal. I love this form and the way that it feels so alive and so human and the, the idea that 
it has this unique ability to turn mistakes into new moves and it's flowy and improvisational. It feels really, really great. I had a feeling that the philosophy of the path to the veil would be a heavy inspiration. But like like I mentioned, this organic birthing of this form was not something that I could have guessed. And Dara does a lovely job making it feel organic, right? Like it feels like it's something that just emerges from him. There's There's this quote that I really love here from him. That says, all my life, I've had the hell divers mentality. Smashing through obstacles fast enough will gain the laurel for my clan. But now, after breaking a million drills in myself, I can see the flaws in that mentality. I'm done forcing my way through rock like a hungry claw until I break. Now, I know to shift around obstacles, flow through gaps like those same deep mind winds that the path referenced the same winds that filled the old tunnels around Lycos. It's just, it, it has this sort of tangibility to it that shows that like we, we talk often about Darrow versus the Reaper. And this is Darrow acknowledging who he should be at this point. There are mm-hmm. parts of him that have failed. There are parts of him that worked and he should be something else. He should be both. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is Darrow acknowledging what he's learned from the Reaper, I think, is more of the way to put it. Because the Reaper sure. is rage incarnate and yeah, this this feels less wrathful. And he mm-hmm. he mentions wielding his rage a little bit, but it, it it feels like less of the personification of rage like the Reaper is. Yeah, it's it's less like it's more like holding the weapon than being the weapon. And that's kind of the representation throughout. And it's that wind that is just so much more as we continue down this perspective. We continue down the path as Dara's mind wanders back to his life before all of this. We hear of the game Tempt the Dark and Eo is back front and center in his mind. And so are the rest of his friends lost, dead and in the veil. And he flows like the breath of Mars's stone. It's a it's a beautiful moment tucked within this, this rampage of battle. And this imagery is great for him to hold and utilize and wield as motivation. These lost friends and, and loved ones. We haven't spent a lot of time this book talking about the religious aspects of this philosophical text very much we we I, I feel like we've mostly referred to it as a philosophical text but it is yeah very easy it's also religious. To, yeah it's easy to to pin it into a religious category in in the um, same way that the Tao is very clearly that it's inspired by like the Tao is intended right. to be a religious text but it is also by base a philosophical text yeah we we know Darrow's relationship with faith has been really complicated throughout this entire story. He started out wholeheartedly believing in the veil and that gets broken and that, that stays broken for most of the story and goes deeper into despair and into um, just sorrowful depths 
of a logical atheist fighting. I, yeah. I think is the way that I think about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm at this point in this section kind of torn on if Darrow sees this as a raw philosophy and is just kind of leaning on some comforting ideas of an afterlife without necessarily believing in it and just kind of using the memories of his friends and putting them into the context of this path to the veil or if he's starting to embrace the religious side of it. I I don't know. I'm sure it's not just one or the other. I'm sure there are there's a spectrum of belief there, but yeah, I, I'm kind of torn on whether or not he in what way he's embracing it, I guess. I think it's good that you tug on that as well, because we do get much later. We're talking about Lorne and Cassius says something along the lines of like, ah, uh, yes, the like atheist warmonger. And, and so that feels reiterative of the idea of like that Darrow is something else, that he is he is a believer in any fashion of, of something that is more. Um, and I think that it does juxtapose it as less of a philosophy and more of a faith. Uh, yeah, or like you're right. I, I had forgotten sort of that Darrow's he's like stance and things. He brushes off that willow mm-hmm. inset and is praying. I think yes, he, he, by right. his own words, he's praying. Is praying. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Praying to who? Praying to an atheist non-believer, and I think that's effectively it's close to what Cassius says. Well, he, but, he says you know. praying, praying for. Yeah, for a. Like, for this atheist um yeah some it wasn't it wasn't warmonger it wasn't non-believer like that it, right. i don't think but it was even non-believer it was no i it was, agreed yeah it was something much more innocuous when we get there we'll, we'll talk yeah. about it for sure yeah, but I'm it, sure something will. to that degree and yep. it is still a very like powerful moment to interrogate because it also points darrow not only reconciling these two parts of himself and becoming i think also from a like reader perspective, a much more likable character again, likable in the amorphous way that people are likable. But immediately he feels more reminiscent of the original trilogy, Darrow, because he's kind of coming through something in a big way that I just, I really appreciate. Yeah. It's tough not to. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about Virginia's description of faith from the perspective of the gold as cold mm-hmm. atheism that doesn't seem to fit it fits the Reaper. It doesn't seem to fit Darrow. And even though I, I'm not a believer in any way, I still appreciate that Darrow is not not within that same category of of cold atheist that yeah that Virginia right. puts herself within. Now, I think if you consider fiction as fiction, right? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's so it's so well rendered. And in the middle of combat, like this is a brutal combative chapter. Like this mm-hmm. is exchanging of blows by and large. And Darrow in this moment continues to whittle away at Fa and the Gorgons beginning begin to intercede in the combat as he takes off the very spikes of his armor, seeing their champion picked apart. The obsidians don't immediately notice, but begin to believe. Darrow continues to clang his blades together again, and the people join the chorus as they realize that Fa is a fraud. 
He asks the Askamani to shoot Tyr Morga, and they come to the realization fully themselves. He shouts at them, calls them fools, and then is attacked by many as Fa has moved to be dishonorable in this combat. Bedlam ensues, and Lyria is under that crush. Clang, 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 motherfuckers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that the bastard would take this dishonorable way out. I was kind of surprised in the moment, my first read through. I remember being surprised that he didn't get immediately swarmed by the the chanting obsidian or the clanging obsidian when he Mom. tried to uh, flee or when he did flee. And it, it wasn't until later that I understood it. But I remember being like, hmm. Are they not actually so riled up and so convinced? But later understanding the intricate rules of succession and getting more into the feelings of honorability and and how things should work with Ashvar. Like this is before we get onto the islands and they're hopping around and People are refusing to intercede because it's an Ashvar. Like, I didn't realize how strong of a conviction the Obsidian had for this um, this duel. So I I almost dealt I, I almost doubted them when they didn't immediately swarm when Fa started to flee. And that's a part that becomes so interesting, especially when you consider like the division among the Obsidian, right? So the difference between the Volk and the Askamati, right? Like they, they're on similar, obviously, they've teamed up. They're this Ouroboros, right? But they, they're on very different sides of things collectively. And so their breakthrough is the one in which, like the Volk probably clear a lot earlier to being on Darrow's side, but the Askamati breaking really kind of redoubles on and proves that honor isn't just some vainglorious statistic that's on like a character sheet. You know what I mean? Like from mm-hmm. a from a a cultural perspective, like this is like a really doubling down, and it, I think it adds a lot of weight to what's going on with Fawn in the moment. Totally, yeah. And Lyria stepping up in this moment when everyone is kind of piling on, grabbing the Warsaw, can't really pick it up. Like trying to swing it, doing her best, gets kind of pushed aside. Volga quickly rescues her and pulls her out of the muck, but it's. You know, I'm I'm glad to see, especially instead of a Darrow perspective, have him recognize that she is here, willing to fight, ready to go. She's she's fiery, for sure. Of course, like any good red is. Yeah. So to end this chapter, there's one final clang, clang, clang that rings out in the dome before Fa flees, heading for the Pandora. That unwilling dishonorable, to face his fate. unworthy shithead. Just an absolute sack of shit. You know what I mean? Like a proper piece of garbage, unwilling to face his fate. What an actor he really is in the end. How dare he? Fuck him. Fuck him. All right, cool. With that, we are on to chapter 74, Darrow, The Hunt. Having fled, Darrow begins his chase of Fa over the islands. Oh, wait, fuck. We need to take a shot. What am I, what am I doing? I'm not yep. even... Welcome what? to chapter huh? 74. Welcome to the Passage of Stains. Crossland has yellow. Oh, God. So he I'm has... I'm not drinking. I'm fine. Banana no, liqueur. Tell me what to do. I, 
If you're not going to drink the banana liqueur, tell me and I'll go get it no, myself it. and I'll do it for it. myself. It's right here. It was a bit. The whole thing was a bit. <laughs> kind of. Crossland has. We're, we're a little drunk. Yellow's banana liqueur. And I have Obsidian's Aquavit. Boy, oh boy. You ready? Yeah. You, you just mentioned being a little bit drunk. I had this grand plan of heating up some leftover lasagna for lunch slash dinner before recording. And then you and I decided to do this crazy shit that we're doing do now. You didn't eat anything? I didn't. So I ate. I oh, ate, my God. I ate donuts during this bathroom break that we just took. <laughs> right. Ivana, you donut. bet on the wrong host. I, That's what I, I'm saying. I ate a donut. I had a, a strawberry glazed sprinkled donut, much like Homer Simpson likes. Mm, um, it's still early. It's 5 p.m. Jesus. I haven't had. I, I had. No, she just means that we're not going to be pushed over. Like, it's still early. It's too early to call that race. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Um, Good work. At 8 a.m., I had some leftover chicken tikka masala for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And that's all I've eaten today other than this donut that I ate on this break <laughs> i had a little bit of pad thai and a bagel which is more than you had so cheers cheers creme de banana down the hatch aquavit <laughs> oh no never again <laughs> it's not a good shot aquavit is not a good oh, shot God, much in the no. same way that Fuck. gin is not a good shot aquavit is a bad Fuck shot that creme de banana is not tolerable that is not ever Never, no. ever again. No, I will. N no, no. <laughs> Holy shit! <clears throat> Did not like low alcohol content. It had nothing to do with the alcohol content. It had a hundred percent to do with the the flavor, the way it hits your mouth, the way it hits your tongue, and the way that oh god, Ugh. yeah. Ugh. The only nope. like I own that like, bottle of cream de banana for that. <laughs> barrel of monkeys tiki drink that you and i made that one time that's the only yeah. thing i've ever used it for <laughs> it's good in that god yeah my Fuck. for the record i was like i know my parents have creme de banana i don't know why and then i got here and was assembling the line of shots very quickly as we were doing for this and i grabbed the bottle and i, I poured just about everything else and i popped the creme de banana and i broke the seal they hadn't even fucking <laughs> opened it it was just sitting in the back of the cabinet. <laughs> we do need greasy pub food. Otherwise, yeah. I don't know. I have, I, I've got pad thai. I will survive. But I think man, I'm I probably going burger. to order from Buffalo Pizza and get a get a delivery of pizza. Because I can't drive to get food right That's now, fair. but I need something oh, greasy. Yeah. <laughs> and all I have <laughs> is like not. leftover leftover tikka masala. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, there's some My lasagna God. in there. <clears throat> yeah. I didn't expect that to be so goddamn bad. <coughs> All right, we have two more shots. And I poured myself a little bit of whiskey for the final chapter, but that's it. That's All right. Fuck. <clears throat> Take your time. Man. <clears throat> Actually, the worst. I thought the blue carousel was going to be the worst. It was fine. It was overly sweet comparatively. From mm -hmm. the banana is way too much. Way too much. I'd rather drink a 99 bananas. Blech. Anyway. All right. Moving on. 
Having fled, Darrow begins his chase of Fa over the islands, flying through the air. He chases him through this series and chain of islands among this archipelago, and the armies clash beneath and around as Diomedes, the golds, and Black Owls hit Fa's reinforcements. I did want to remark, I find it really interesting and fan like rim style fantastic that Diomedes is so quickly able to pull so many gold over to his side so quickly on this island and with everything else going on to believe in that cause uh i I just think it's really great really remarkable because he is sort of that force of will it is great and it is remarkable but i think it makes sense he doesn't have to reveal the full breadth of his situation and his connection to darrow or the daughters no i mean even if he did maybe it would still happen but he doesn't have to it is a a dire situation that has that to be is acted what, upon just quickly. You're you're not wrong. I just want to clarify. Diomedes would, though. He would make it very clear what they were signing up for because that's the kind of person he is. He that's would not undersell true. anything. It would be entirely clear. That's be probably true. Yeah, anyway. This is that other side of honor that is showcased in this section. And it's it's... The same as, but different from the honor uh, of the obsidian that is uh, kind of the crux of how this fight has come to be. So it's um, Wagner or obsidian, the obsidian culture culture being so centered around. Do they do they use the term honor? Do they use a different term? But it, it feels like the same thing of. Think holding they, yourself they say to honor your word more than once. And, yeah it's accountability regardless of which way you slice this no matter how you say it, it but yeah. it, it's it's accountability amongst the masses versus uh accountability at the top of the pyramid mm-hmm. so that's where that difference comes in but the like the the end result is the same in that they will do what's right regardless of their personal feelings about something because of how they have committed themselves and what uh what people they've allied themselves with yeah absolutely they've done there's this like great definitional line between the two and sort of the beliefs and the faiths of these people and i love that comparison i think that you're right i do think as stated, that Diomedes finds it very easy to convince these golds to do that because they they hold themselves to a different honorific standard than, say, a lot of the core golds do. So it's less of a there's less of a conflict, and especially just on the base merit of like protect your planet, they of course are aligned. I think it's cited that there are 36 golds with him, which is not a ton, but it's enough. You know, mm-hmm. it's something. It's it's a start. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be fun to, if if we get a conversation with Diomedes about that, to see how that recruitment session went. And if there were, if there were golds that refused to join or not. Mm -hmm. Right. Like what, what was the, what was the turn that happened? But Dara and Fa continue to jump island from island where the feasting are has uh, feasting in the ceremony right they're they're all having their different moments with their different bands inside the obsidian hierarchy 
where Fa crashes into the ground or onto the table and calls to them for help. But they are easily dispatched by Darrow's new breath of stone when the couple that do stand up are stand up. And then he calls out again to confess as the hand of Atlas out Ross slamming those blades together in the clang, clang, clang that we've called the familiar refrain of this entire section. Fa fights back with his Warsaw, which, you know, it's tough to not ever say Warsaw and just not immediately think of Poland. Am I the only one? I Like, you stare, you stare at, like, the map of things or, like, the things that you know, and you're like, oh, yeah, Warsaw, Poland. But, like, Warsaw, I'm going to cut through people. Very different, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. The Polish, as a Polak, <laughs> got, I've got an opinion here. There you go. And it's that we need more Warsaws. <laughs> that shit's intense. It's intense. I had been wondering for a long time if there would ever be a weapon that could oppose a razor Rival. in any way. Yeah. Because the razor has been kind of the end-all be-all of of weapons in general. And I'm, ex- I'm happy to see this coming into existence and, and be another piece to be worked around well, jumping in general poses yeah. that sort of larger threat though too with like his armor being something that isn't conventionally attackable by a razor right like that's kind of the whole thing is it's like a deconstruction of the idea of like what a razor fight is to some degree right um, totally yeah something we yeah. didn't talk about either that i just want to bring up real quick inside of this whole duel section is that the duels that we've experienced in this series up until this point have been like seconds, maybe a minute at most. Like they're quick. This is prolonged by all fashions. Like the duel earlier is long. This is long. We're continuing into a stretch of time. And so it just shows how equitable they are on their feet. Um, right. Pretty impressive. This jumping around between islands creates this very dynamic theater, obviously, um, of combat. And beyond just the the change of the landscape that they're fighting on, it changes the audience that they're fighting around. Mm-hmm. And I think Fa is hoping that at least one of these is going to join him <laughs> and be on his side. But this is such a deep-rooted religious conviction of Ashvar that he is sorely mistaken in that attempt to jump between the islands. Yeah, his manipulation is working no longer, right? Like this, is a, mm-hmm. this is a whole... A whole problem and he repeats this and he keeps doing it over and over again but the people know they've caught wind of what's happening and this goes yeah. to that next folk island definitely launches himself again they chase him down harrying from this island to island experience and like variously from that first island where a couple of people stand up it only as they move further out in the bands of course in terms of respect we see less of that for him as he also has to move out the layers of islands in his he, own hierarchy, he's watching it degrade. 
which is and fascinating. It, it's his fault to begin with, or it's partially his yeah. fault to begin with in that he leaned upon their um, idea that strength is the ultimate uh, pinnacle of leadership and mm-hmm. whoever is the strongest should be the leader. If that strength comes into question, like is happening now with Ashvar, what's what's he got to lean on other than uh like he, he doesn't have that traditional sense of leader loyalty that he would have expected in the rim it's yeah it's a great misstep by him i think it definitely is it's absolutely a misstep by all accounts like it is how do i say the fact that he hasn't realized that if those that have stood up like right away in the first, they're only a handful and that it's only going to degrade. Like he is not, he is a legend. Yes, but he is not a God. And so is, so is Darrow. Right. But Darrow in a lot of ways might be mythological. Like it's, especially as Cassius reader, it's later. It kind he kind of is. He's got a bit of that going on for him. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, this, again continues to repeat Fa's legend grades as he goes further out and Darrow proves again and again and again that he can slay dragons and that he is this dragon killer so yeah jumping from island to island continues to prove to be folly yeah and a dire mistake that is kind of backfiring or has the potential of backfiring it is actively well it it isn't working out the same way that he would want to, but it could. Um, it hasn't proven to backfire yet, sure. Which would be if he hadn't been hypothetically, if he hadn't jumped from island to island and basically shown what was going on to every cell of the obsidian on Europa, there would have been a possibility for the Gorgon operatives that still existed, if there are any more that survived mm-hmm. to mount a very quick counter propaganda campaign of uh, very quickly turning the tide against Darrow or turning the sentiment against Darrow by spreading lies. And that, that isn't really an option anymore because a, a majority of the Volk and Askamani have witnessed this fight going on. Witness. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. There are elements, we've reiterated this a couple of times, but there are elements of this that are reminiscent of Mad Max and Mad Maxian stuff, mostly in Dark Age, more in Dark Age than here. But it's still in the back of our minds, especially as we think about like Obsidian culture and the way that they react. It has that same sort of Nordic backbone to it. And so similarly, as he's jumping from island to island, he's degrading his own myth. You know, yeah. he's he's becoming and Darrow is doing a wonderful job of not killing him when he probably could have, but ensuring that the legend dies. Right. Yeah. <coughs> All right. With that, we move into chapter 75. Lyria. Prove it. What Crossland are we shooting, PJ? Has. P flower gin. So what I wrote was Empress Jinx, which is the one that I have in-house. But you have, I think, End of Days? Yes, this is End of Days, Pea Flower, Butterfly Jinx. 
Okay, so it, that is I know that it's for, for those that are watching this. This isn't a pink glass, but it is also a pink liqueur. So yeah, but that that is representing the violets, and I am representing the pinks with yes. grapefruit infused vodka from uh, infused spirits. Also, we know that there are a lot of ads here and that Thomas would be very upset about it, this to us, but, you know, he doesn't run our show. So, you know, free ads mm-hmm. all over the place. Free ad. If you want, you can order the end of day spirits on a lot of different spirit ordering websites. So if you want to try it, do. And can. if there are any representatives should... of the spirits that we are consuming on hey, this show. Curiata. Want to turn this into a not free ad. We're open. <laughs> Cheers. Hey, hey, that girl at end of days that I talked to, please. Sponsor us. Don't just listen. Anyway. Was there was there somebody at end of days that listened yeah, to your show? They recognized my voice, which was weird. That's hilarious. When I went in. This was this is prior to you guys coming out for my birthday thing last year. I think it was mm-hmm. in like November or something like that. They had just put out some spirit and I went in and I bought it and they were commenting. She was like, oh, yeah, you did the 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 Instagram photo with all the like shots that you built. And then people started to listen. Like some of us listen to like your show. We really like the romance episode, this, that, the next thing. And I was like, well, all right, just now all you need to do is pay me. <laughs> we'll be good. <laughs> anyway. No, it's great to have listeners. If you're listening and you're it not is. paying us, of course it's fine. it is. Of course it is. It was just very funny that that was the. The sort of thing because they the when we did that misborn shot with the end of days p flower right. right that was brand new that was like maybe three months old it was new on the shelf so mm-hmm. yeah that's yeah. awesome all right we're into lyria prove it and this is a remarkably powerful chapter despite being how incredibly short it is it is empowered with a lot of great conversations that happen between volga and lyria as they're fleeing the scene of combat in the moment Volga saving her friend Lyria. Nothing is all right. Volga wants to save herself, of course, but also this friend that is so important to her. She can't believe that she's done what she's done, including ripping out the hearts of all of these people. Lyria calls her out for it, for killing Sigurd, for killing the other 13 colors before that. I mean, there is a a line of corpses that she created that, I mean... It's difficult to acknowledge that this is the same Volga that wants to open a zoo. Like, this is a tough reality to swallow, I think, especially for the character we've come to know and love. It really is. Through all of this, all I can think about is how much I love how assertive Lyria has become. She's, She's learned to pare down her brashness. And hone it into this tool that can be wielded. And she's proven to be a very valuable, motivating like force a couple yeah. times already. But th- this one very particularly as, a, as an example. I, I think a lot of people, you know, one of, one of the things within the fandom and otherwise that I've noticed, of course, is that like a lot of people for most of the series have been very down on Lyria. And I think it's because they didn't understand where this was going or what was going on with it. But in without even the hindsight, we talked about this before this book came out, of course, but like she is clearly meant to be this sort of inverse representative of the red color against Darrow, right? She is 
She's from the rich part of the culture that always wins the laurel. There are so many different metrics that go to say that she is sort of the better of the Reds. In quotes, you know, not literally better, but better functionally in the way that society propped them up. And to see her make this change to speak to tenacity, to not feel like sort of the downtrodden is just such a great moment. And this is one of those things that I go back on when we think about the fact that she gave up the Oracle and everything else that she's like given up at this point. Like this is empowering. This is her realizing that she is way more than whatever superpower she might have had with some silly tech in her brain. It still could be cool if she has the tech in her brain. Don't get me wrong that Mateo repaired it, maybe, but she doesn't need it. And that's kind of why I really love her character and what Pierce did with it inside of this book. Like it's this is exactly the chapter that proves how good she is, how great she is. Totally. I agree. It was a really long-winded way of saying, fuck yeah. I love Fuck yeah. But tough to not. Tough to not. Throughout your your speaking on that, I was pouring my next shot, which is I hadn't realized was Tyr Connell, T-Y-R. So more- Is it Irish? Yeah, it's single malt Irish whiskey, but- um, Oh shit, you're having like a good Irish. I'm having a good Irish whiskey for this. Fuck. For the next one. But- yeah, more apt that it blends into the idea of Tyr and mm-hmm. Ashvar and the Obsidian culture. So, yeah, sorry to sorry to break a little <sighs> no, bit. No, no, no. I I don't. It really it was more of a rant uh, than than anything else. It's not meant to be like super. I don't know. It, more meant to be like a talking point of people not getting it is more on them than it is on the text like that is their own fault yeah. their own problem to to sort of right. wrestle with she is to ivana ivana of course saying she is braver than darrow absolutely she is she immediately totally. without capability stands up to fucking faw grabs his war axe and is trying to lift it to swing it at him like are you kidding me Darrow is, is of course, a brave and valiant person, but he is also effectively a superhero. She is a civilian nobody of whom is fighting to strike him down. Like, it's... Right. The fact that people don't talk about this in the same regard is just mind-boggling to me. It is... It's that difference between understand. This is so much more than I want to try to get into inside of any one of these episodes and maybe i should try more and we should talk about this more but this is the difference between like a literal interpretation and a diegetic interpretation like what you need to stretch outside of the immediacy of what's happening to understand the actuality of the choice right and we do that a number of times like that's a part of our podcast we try to make sure that it's very clear try to hit larger concepts and themes But a lot of people these days, especially reviewers and people of whom talk about content, take only the immediate and don't talk about the metaphor, don't engage with context or paratext. And that is so frustrating. And that is exactly what's going on here from a Reddit, from a social media perspective. That it's like you just are missing this character entirely because you're only engaging engaging with her immediate impact. And it's not about the immediacy of what she does. It's about what she means to the totality of the story. 
to the totality of reality. Yeah. Anyway, that was a big digression. But but you're right. And I agree. Two, three, sip. Taking a drink. Nonetheless, love Lyria. I think she's great. I really believe that she comes into her own inside of this story, which is lovely to experience. She's the little Iron Man in Iron Man 2. Yeah, she's... In my in my head, I think she's more like the kid in Iron Man three, but I understand the little little Iron Man in Iron Man two. So with that, moving forward, I love the line <laughs> that comes out of this whole thing as they're having this exchange. Darrow is apparently a werewolf. He eats warlords and shits nightmares, which is very close to text that we've heard described several, <laughs> which is so good because it's, it's like, oh yeah, like this is this is just the Howler way in its own right. Have we had any other references in any way to werewolves within this story? Not that I can think of immediately. No. So it matches the wolf motif of the Howlers, obviously. I would love to find out that there's a secret werewolf squad within the The Howler Legion of like carved wolf people. How fucking cool would that be? It would like, be very like, cool. <laughs> like a hidden squad of werewolves within Howler Legion. I haven't, I haven't thought about this until this very moment now that you brought it off, brought it up in terms of like the werewolf motif and the wolf motif. We've talked about these alternate personalities. It is, are they not the werewolf versions of themselves every time that they adopt them? This is their full moon. It's calling out to them that they transform into something else okay. when called upon, right? Okay. Like that's... Kind of a thing, actually. That is kind of a thing. I can't believe I thing. missed that. Yeah, huh. I, I yeah. considered that it's, at it's all. It's so either. werewolf. It's so. It is. Yeah, it is so. Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Uh, obviously, we've, we've talked about the split personalities of the werewolf. Or, or, excuse me, of the Reaper versus Darrow, of the Goblin versus Severo. Cassius only has one personality, and it's snide and cute. Like it's at the same time. I mean, but, it's like Cassius of all of these the different. Chin. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Cassius and the chin might be the case. Might be the case. But yeah, I werewolf. Actually, I I don't I don't think this is what you were swinging for, but I think you actually did. Pull out. A better concept than our like split personality thing. I wasn't going for that. You're right. No, I know. I know. I know. I know. But it does want, feel more I want carved wolf people. Now that I think about it. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know what you were going for. But now that I'm thinking about it. Hmm. <laughs> All right. And this is Darrow embracing the wolf in a way. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to need to think about that some before we get to the end of this. I mean, it, it, it is their howler names. Right. Literally. Like they they adopt this secondary personality that they become among the others that become it at the same time. It's reminiscent of a full moon when when they're together. Like they Yeah. The they Republic probably, did ban animal carving, Ivana, to your point, because of unethical behaviors. I believe that they paused at the very least. Like it it seems like something they should stop. Oh god. This that's would be weird... people carving though. This isn't yeah, this is right, right. This, this is, is just people. I think this is more like I don't think they'd actually literally embed werewolves. wolf DNA, literally. but like yeah. give people claws and like really razor sharp teeth and like something yeah. to make them more wolf like. No, I mean, clown yeah. becomes a literal feral clown 
under the weight of a full moon. You know what I mean? Like he is genetically altered to become it. That's yeah, Pennywise. That, not quite what I'm talking about. Pebble I'm not talking looks about, like, like a giant fucking rock with sharpened <laughs> rock teeth. <laughs> sharpened rock teeth. Screwface um, looks like a screw. He's got those like weird tin. He's got those weird like little bits on the outside that if you were wood, you'd be really afraid. You know what I mean? It's going to screw in. Yeah. So I am like thinking about this and so mentioning good. the Howler name thing. Mm-hmm. We know Severo and Darrow's like Howler names versus their real names, Goblin yep. and Reaper. Do we know the real names of any of the other like original Howlers? No, <laughs> for the most part. Yeah, no, they're all they're all otherwise. For some reason, I feel like accident. In my head, there's a moment in this novel, yes, Thistle, Thistle, and also in this book, for some reason, I felt like we got, it, it, it's probably just my mind, but I thought we got Screwface's name from Virginia. I thought she mentioned him by first name without calling him Screwface, in addition to referencing him as Screwface. I, I, I feel like we would have brain. mentioned it. On the show, I feel like it's just my brain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's but just you. I don't remember. I, man, that. It, I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong, but I don't remember that at all. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's definitely just me filling in details because I've done this so much. But yeah, Cassius did name a number of Hallows to Kev's point. Um, Thistle, Thistle is Serena. That is the name in my head, <laughs> and again, head canon. Right. Literally don't remember this. Cannot recall it. Probably can't find it in the page. To me, Serena is there, but the name that I was thinking of for Screwface is Sebastian. Um, that is in my head his name. I don't know. I can't help it, but that's what I thought it was. So Horatius Al Savag. Is that that can't actually is that actually his name? The wiki says that's his name. Hmm. I trust the wiki 90% for the record. 90% of the wiki is accurate. I've disproven it a couple of times, but thank you, Ivana, for bringing that up. Horatius is a good name. I prefer prefer Sebastian. You know, regardless, number of great names, and I would love to know more of them, but at the same time, you know, PJ, what's your werewolf name? Got one? Hmm... Can I bestow that upon myself? Of course. He says as a way of wiggling you, out of actually answering the question. <laughs> you, you get to bestow it, bestow it upon yourself. Oh. You have to, I think. It's a rule. Or maybe maybe we abide by Howler rules here. Let's let's does live chat and have an idea. Yeah, yeah. What's uh PJ and I both need not howler names, because we have technically howler names. We're calling these our werewolf ish names give us give us those pj you've been granted by ivana the name moonshine i like which is a great werewolf name for the record name yeah moonshine like perfect absolutely yeah you've been bestowed upon the name as shooter you know and immediately i think shooter mcgavin i think that i am the asshole out there on the fairway being a dick and that fits right like that's me i am i am the worst (laughs) no 
but I I like that. I like that conventionally better than my standard Haller name of Gambit, which is mostly the fault of me saying Gambit too many goddamn times on this podcast. <laughs> so, you know, so it, it's a little bit more representative <laughs> than than my current name. So we'll take that. In the end, though, I, I appreciate the way this chapter is short. It's brief by all accounts. Lyria tells Volga to prove that her people are here, that there's this serious sort of emotional depth that she is here in the moment with these folks. She has to be present that they are actually with her here, that she needs to stay, that she cannot flee, that she cannot jump to the next thing as she has done so many times before, avoiding that responsibility because to leave, she'll be giving up on everyone, including herself. And she chooses in this moment to be held accountable. She chooses to stay and not flee in a powerful speech given by Lyria. Yeah. It's it's a wonderful argument from Lyria, and obviously it resonates with Volga, but the whole thing's touching, and Lyria is continuing to prove how solid she is in her ability to motivate mm-hmm. in, in a brash and rough way, but a very good way. Yeah, it's very real. It's very tangible. She is making for herself... The life, not that she wants to live, but she's making for herself a reality, right? And she's carving that out. And it is, she's always felt amorphous in this series. And she always has been like, I don't have a home. Here's what I want. Here's like my end dream retirement goal is being a zookeeper. It's great. We love that. She's brilliant. She's cute. She's pretty. She's naive. Now she's being forced into something very different. And we'll we'll be able to talk about that more a little bit at the end of 77, but like, yeah, there's a lot there for our girl to tackle and wrestle with. So with that, we move into our final shot of the, I mean, our final part of the <laughs> passage <laughs> stains as we move into the final low colors that we're each taking. I have brown, you've red. Uh, correct. You've got brown. I've got red. So I've got Irish so you're whiskey. Taking- I have. It was actually a Christmas gift from my wife. Oh, uh, already? Like earlier no, last year? No, last year's or mm. maybe two years ago. No, last year. Okay. It was last year's. Um, okay. Got it. Tear Connell. Double distilled single malt Irish whiskey aged 10 years and finished in port casks. Yum. Yeah. That sounds ridiculously good. I it's it's it is really good. I don't think I've really showcased it on this show before, but no, I don't think I've even heard of this on the show. Yeah. So I think I've wild. had it on the show. Well, I don't doubt that you've had it, but I haven't talked about it. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. So I'm having Amaretto di Sorano, classic brown. Thinking about it now, the because it's for browns, we should have given you cooking sherry. I, okay. <laughs> this is the thing for violets. I thought about just popping up in a bottle of wine and being like, here's a shot of whatever this like rare wine is. And we'll talk about that. But yeah. And then it would be fun to have then done that against. 
again, we we thought of this with 30 minutes of spare time. So here we are. I still had 30 minutes before notes. this recording. I no, just got back from finished. the airport yeah. and and I uh, called you and yeah. I said, hey, by the way, <laughs> yep. here's Cheers. an idea. So Di Salmono for our champions of the series, the Browns, the Cooks, the real heroes, the main Cheers. The main characters. We did it. We've passed Passage of Stains. We are collectively one stained obsidian. I have not been this drunk on the show in a bit. (laughs) (laughs) We still have technically two chapters to go. So we fucked up. We forgot. No, we're fucked up. (laughs) We didn't fuck up. We're fucked up. Both can be true. Similar, different. All right. With that, into the chapter proper. Darrow, proper? by the laws. <laughs> Don't you dare. We can't start this now. <laughs> I'm already there. Chapter 76, Darrow, by the laws of the ice. The chase continues as it drives towards its end over the archipelagos, as we've talked about previously. Fa has ran out of space and begs for his life. His voice box fails intermittently, which is so well done by DGR. My God, like in text, very cool to see the bold go to faded and like it works perfectly as portrayed. But TGR next level shit. This is done properly. It's great. At this point, the clangs aren't even Darrow's that are asking for Fa to confess. It's the crowd that is chasing the pair of them down because they know that that echoing sound is going to call to him because that's what is desired of Fa in this moment. God damn it. This is such a powerful section. It's very powerful. <sighs> so powerful that I, <laughs> I'm just going to read what I wrote verbatim because it's so unhelpful for this, into, like for this actual section. And I think it's kind of funny to read it exactly as I wrote the notes. So, okay. Quote, there's a story that this reminds me of, but I can't for the life of me remember what one. Don't think it's the Odyssey or the Iliad, but very well could be. The way Fa's composure crumbles is incredibly satisfying. So there's something, there is truly, like this reminds me of something that like I know I've read this story. And I don't remember what it is. Hmm. This story, like, can the, you give me a little bit more specifics on like the parts that you're reconciling with or like trying to figure where out? Fa's facade of this mm. really gruff, aggressive character is starting to crumble and his there are his a lot power, of these. Yeah. It, yeah. But specifically with the voice changing and and his presentation itself regardless of who he actually is and and how he actually holds himself but the power that he has built as a facade is crumbling in the face of an adversary main character yeah did you pj ever see uh 1997's anastasia hmm because for me your description is immediately evocative of the way the Rasputin dissolves in the end of that movie. Like he starts to lose his sort of continence, even in the world, because he's this sort of undead entity. That very um, might, very well might be what I'm thinking of. 
it's it's not a perfect example by any means. No, I think that there are better ones. But I don't, I'm thinking like yeah. that's kind of similar to the sort of trope that you're talking it is. about. I have. I have seen it. Of course. And so you know Bat Rock, right? The best bat boy that we ever yeah. ever did know in yeah. any fiction ever. He's just he's a little hoppy guy. He does yeah. like a little, you know. Yeah, okay, exactly. Cool. Right. That might be what I'm thinking of. I don't I don't know. Darth it's not Vader. Darth Vader. Also no wrong. That's Ivana. a great answer. That's, that's a great idea. It's not wrong. But it's not what I'm thinking of. It might, it very well might be Rasputin. But it's along the line, it shares the trope with... There's a trope to Rasputin it. Yeah. from... Yeah. Right. It's definitely tropey, and I'm trying to think of other examples, but that was the first one that came to my mind, was Rasputin in that, because he's also literally falling apart, which is its own component. Mm-hmm. That, that so. was a big part of it, too, was yeah. the... The voice box short circuiting and yeah, being kind of a stand in for the entire facade falling apart. Right. And it, it really is. And that facade dissolves to a point in which Darrow kind of recognizes it and he sees him for who he is. And he's got this brilliant quote here from his perspective. He says, I see him clearly now beneath the mountain of the man lies a venal quaking spirit a greedy little man for my choosing to see him as small to ease the dread in knowing they're servants of the enemy with the sort of conviction his mission would take. I doubt it is his fault that Atlas made Fa his tool. Fa went along with the worlds as do most of us. They've been born one generation later. Who knows what side he'd be on. And this is one of those coffee shop notes that I took down immediately that reminded me of Tactus. And we'll get to talk more between this and Tactus. But Fa does seem more like a man of Darrow's taste. And in some ways, Atlas's, because they operate with similar, similar, like, primal rules. If you consider, like, the D&D chart, right, of capabilities... I don't want to map this out. We don't have to. We don't have to be responsible for that. But they do feel like Atlas and Darrow line up in some sort of vertical, lawful, chaotic, neutral. Like they line up somewhere there, but they're on the opposite sides of the sort of morality spectrum on that paradigm. Yeah, Um, I could see that. So you can see where, you know, like Fa could have been a person for Darrow. Yeah, I I think... The ideas of circumstance, indoctrination, and timing are all very hot forges. Mm -hmm. I like that comparison to Tactus. I think there's a lot more nuance to it. I don't think it's a one-to-one, obviously. I don't know what you're intending it to be. I'm curious to see what Atlas thinks when he hears this news. He has a lot of plates spinning in the air and Fa dying before uh, Lysander can pretend to kill him knocks a lot of those plates down. Because of that, I think his reaction will be hard to read as well as the fact that he's just a hard to read person in general. But regardless, their interactions earlier point to them being something more than just co-workers and something more like a kinship i don't know if it's quite as strict of a brotherhood as fa seems to uh, hold in his heart 
Like, I, I don't know if that's reciprocated. I feel like it might be. Yeah. But well, at, the very, at, at the very least, there's something more than just a. More than the way that Darrow minimizes it, right? Like Darrow really yeah. like, kind of it, zeroes in and like, you're no more than an obsidian. But he's he not really just a tool yeah. for uh, Atlas, I'd be willing to believe. Yeah. For Atalantia, he's probably just a tool. Like that is absolutely her True. perspective for sure. on this. For sure. But for Atlas, no. I think he views him genuinely as brother someone that he cares about someone that he that that's a that's a question that i'm kind of is more of a human and i i I don't know if brother is like fa sees atlas as a brother i don't know if it's that far for atlas towards fa maybe maybe i do think so but i understand yeah but at the very least it's more than just a tool what's more than he thinks of his blood son as being his son Right, like he cares way more about Fa than he ever did Ajax, which is that's true. It's so awful for Ajax, and also has obviously let him down a part of that path. But also, yeah, mm-hmm. heart wrenching in more ways than one. Finally, everyone arrives, and he confesses that Atlas is his master. He confesses to the reality of what's happening. But he served Atlas and the society at large as a part of Cohorse Nihil which is Zero Legion, which, as we know from Morningstar, are the folks that protect the innermost parts of society. They're sort of the secret service of society. And he was protecting, or was a part of the group that was protecting things like the Dragon's Maw and other components. So, Is it possible that he showed up in in Morningstar? No, I don't think so, because he he was outlawed with... He was removed... At the same time as Atlas, so given the time frame, doesn't work. Okay, but he he was a part of the training of those folks, or was one of a number of them, while we were a part of the story. He was yeah. not there though, which that gives more credit to your question about or your your musings on if he was born a generation later, because at the, very possibly. If he was, he's got a interacted ton of with Ragnar earlier, in him, of course. Like he he yeah. could have been turned. He could have been working for the Republic. That's the textual argument, though, is that anyone, and I think Pierce tries to make it explicit at this point that anyone can be turned. It's just that there was so much debt to a different society that he couldn't, he couldn't look over his shoulder and try to take a different path. Right, because he he'd created such a such a path for himself, so it's it's tough to rectify for sure. Yeah, but I think that everyone, for the most part, as far as characters go, fall into that. Like, could they have been, and they could have, and probably would have been, had they been aware or enlightened. Which is also why I don't think that this is such. It's not such a good point from a textual perspective to say like, oh, this compares to Taxus. Because I also don't think that there's good text to say that Tactus would have changed in the long run outside of the fact that whoever's in power is who he's respecting, you know, like it, it's a, it's still respect to a power hierarchy, not a foundational philosophical change. That's my like core issue, I think, at heart with, and this is more of a Pierce complaint than a textual complaint, but like. I don't know if the text makes a solid enough argument that Fa would have changed his position outside of 
agreeing with whoever's in power. And the same thing can be said of Tactus to me. I, I, I guess I think the argument that Pierce is making is that one generation later didn't have the additional decades of indoctrination. Of course, and, yeah. And digging into I get a philosophy, that. right? Or a, a, right, I get an it. idea. So, I think I think that's. I want to make it very clear from. that I understand where the text is coming from, and I generally agree with it. But it it poses the same kind of issues that the tactus, like changing thing, does. Like, sure, he could have. Anyone could, but did they? Or would they? Or are they committing to it? Or like, what's what's sort of the foundational change in their spirit that would make them swing that way? Mm-hmm. And the only thing that I see with Thaw swinging him is this belief in his brother more than anything else. He doesn't believe foundationally in the society necessarily, or like what they stand for, or what needs to be done. He believes in Atlas's path to purity or to rule or to whatever. He believes in Atlas. And so, like, there's no secondary force. So I don't think a decade removed or a generation removed would really foundationally change the man Mm -hmm. outside of if, like, there were other powers that, like, it's still, he is still succumbing to the power structure. He is not a better person despite the power structure. That's my issue. And I also think Tactus has the same problem, wherein... Roke, don't want to go on this tangent for too long, but like Roke is evocative of ideas. Thaw is not, Tactus is not. Neither of them think about things in larger contexts outside of the people that they relate to within the power structure in the text. So that's where I think like Roke has that like potential to change if he was a decade removed or like a decade, whatever, like he could change. Tactus to me doesn't read as a changer and Faw similarly doesn't read as a person that would change. That's outside of changing for power's sake. But that was a long winded way of getting to that point. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Sorry. We're a little, I'm, I'm a little drunk and ranting about it. What? It's fine. What? How (laughs) you've been drinking. Did you, did you make it through the passage of stains? This is the passage of stains. The episode. I might just title this Passage of Stains. Episode 10, Lightbringer. Sure. Just to break the format for fun. We'll see. Yeah. But even in the end, Thaw refuses to give up Atlas, his brother. The Obsidian leaders all make different arguments for who should be king in the moment. Volga is thrown the gauntlet by Darrow, of course, and picks it up. Her and Fa speak and they have this exchange emotionally. Fa breaks down and says, like, I believe that if I made you understand where I was coming from, you would be similar to me and you wouldn't see me as such a demon. And before he even finishes that idea or thought, she reaches her hand into his chest, plucks out his heart, throws it over his shoulder, just like Luke with the lightsaber, and calls it unworthy before he thaw collapses and is consumed by the crabs and all the ensuing ensuing obsidian onlookers unworthy quote unquote is probably the best eulogy this man deserved yeah 
I, throughout all of this, we've talked about it quite a bit earlier, and this is kind of when it actually comes to fruition, but the lawyering and the logic that's worked out mm -hmm. um, as a means of avoiding the su succession problem is yep. great. It's really well, well written and well logiced. I am so happy that Pierce created Sigurd. Fuck, not Sigurd. Scarde as this uh, very inten like intelligent, logical, lawyer-like obsidian character. It pays off wonderfully. I mean, at the end of this, right? Is like he he comes to terms with reality, but I. It is such a moment to have Volga pluck out Fa's heart and call him unworthy after all of the credit that Fa gave Ephraim for being actually genuinely worthy for that to be realized fundamentally on the page is the greatest gravestone you could ever ask for my favorite character of the second trilogy Ephraim like mm -hmm. this is it's his his loss is still felt and it's still echoing through the series in this moment. And this is his comeuppance, despite the lack of the sort of gray character who's jaded on the world. This is the moment in which he gets his say. And this is his say is for his daughter and for Fa's daughter to reckon with who she loves most. And that is so great that in the end, despite all those late nights at bars where Ephraim was a piece of shit, kicked her out, said, don't follow me around like lost puppy. In the end, she honors him first. So mm -hmm. good. Totally. I love it. Ugh, man. It's tough. I miss Ephraim. I miss Ephraim a lot in this story, partially because of the humor and some of the other stuff. Cassius does alleviate that quite a bit, but like, this is one such example where it's just like, I miss how much I love that character in that perspective. And this just pays homage in the best way that Pierce could at this point. So the fact that Severo talks about campaigning to all the Braves, though, that he becomes suddenly the up chested political spokesperson of like, all right, well, it's time to go. Let's let's talk about the ideas and the thoughts and the ideas of like what you're going to do and what you're going to speak is such a fun moment that just makes me giggle when he suddenly becomes this like politician. And Pierce Brown himself was a political activist and uh, I believe his bachelor's degrees in political science worked for a number of campaigns, senator campaigns in the United States and whatnot. But like, it's very funny to kind of see that finally come out and to also come out of almost left field from Severo as a character. It's just, it's kind of, I don't know. It's kind of genius. I like it. I appreciate it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I did too. It was yeah. a very fun, stern speech from Severo. Um, right. It very much felt less like this warlord talking about installing a government than it did feel like a teacher talking to a rowdy group of students picking group projects or like naturally project groups you know right it felt much less serious and much less um encompassing than what it truly is right and i yeah. don't know what to make of that but 
the 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 stakes didn't feel quite as high because i I think because of the language that severo uses throughout this it feels less serious he's like disarmingly funny for the first time he's been almost since the original trilogy like he's almost like he feels like himself for the first time in a long time i think instead of this series Mm -hmm. like he He's just evocative of old Sebra being like, all right, so here's the plan. You're going to do this. It's going to be a good time. You're going to do well. I'm not worried about it. And I'm just spitting fire where I can. And man, it's great. Yeah. I really appreciate it. But that is the end of part four or sorry, excuse me, of part three Tempest. Any thoughts by and large on, on part three, this long stretch of the book? Not at the moment. I mean, it was, it was a, I feel battered going through it, you know, that's, I, I think by it was exhausting. It was amazing, but it was exhausting. It was, it was a very Mm -hmm. action packed and emotionally packed, emotion packed and dialogue packed section. Like everything hit really, really hard. It in any other book. This is two parts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's the pre Athena parts and then there's the post Athena parts and there's the post Fa part. Like that's the way that I see this breaking down. But rationally, this is still all one section of Darrow's journey, which I think is why it's still framed this way mm. as Tempest. Makes sense. As a meta question, which I have to ask, we generally don't ask these things. You know, we try not to ask them until we're at like the beginning of an episode or something like that. There's no Virginia in this part. Did you feel like that missing? Are you okay with no, not having frankly, more story? I kind of there? liked it. I liked I, I liked how this felt isolated. I was It's not that I didn't like how open everything felt in the previous sections. Like I I did. Mm-hmm. I liked I liked getting the perspective as a, and understanding where everybody's at in any given but it's focused uh, situation, here. but like this is focused. That yeah, that, that's a great way to yeah. put it. This feels more focused. Focused, and I, I hadn't, I had recognized and I had noticed that Virginia's missing, and but ge- it, like it matches geographically. Yeah, we, we're course. not, we're not in the core. We're in the rim, so we're dealing with whoever's in the rim. And I think mm-hmm. we could have cut out even more of Lysander and still been perfectly fine. Just cut all the Lysander. Just kidding. I actually I'm, that's I not really what I, the I guess that's not my. I know. Point, I know. But, I'm, I'm making. I'm yeah. making a joke. But yeah, no. I I understand sort of your focused perspective point of view of like you don't need Lysander even in these moments to like focus in there. However, we're not done with Lysander yet. Of course, with this book. Sure. So we did. You know, your perspective is pew pew. pew limited we're going to come back into the episode part four brothers so obviously we've started the rest of the series we've ended on different moments hang on we're going to take the shot but we've ended on different moments and we generally have treated the bookends of the parts like bookends of the parts however i don't generally disagree with the structure that authors choose in their books i do actively disagree with this one inside of this whole book i think that the resolution of volga's story 
needs to happen on this side as a denouement of the part, not the beginning of the next part, because it does feel like we are just resolving things, leaving some things out there, of course, to be solved yet. But this feels like it belongs in part three, not part four to me myself. I th- it feels like this chapter uh, belong. I haven't been exposed to the rest of the the right. part, but it feels like it's not separate from what we've just experienced. So, right, yeah, yeah. We're in when you get there. Not to say that there's like a different feeling that you'll have, but as it goes. All right, we are taking. We've already gone through the color hierarchy. We've each poured ourselves another shot of alcohol here. Uh, this is for humanity and for the Republic. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So. We get to chapter 77. Sorry, I have to read the quote yet for part four brothers. Part four brothers. For a friend with an understanding heart is worth no less than a brother. Homer. Such an interesting quote, PJ, that it's tough to reckon with independently of, of the text. What what do you make of what you think is coming? I mean, we've talked about brothers a lot, this book. We have talked about brothers a lot. It it feels like, based on this quote, more than what's happening politically or militarily. We are going to deal with interactions interpersonally amongst Darrow, Cassius, and Severo. But that doesn't feel like I'm actually answering any sort of questions. And, no, I mean, uh, within reason, like it a is. cop out yeah. answer. I don't think it's a cop out. We've we've talked about the brothers, the sets of brothers, right? We've got by consideration. We've got. As you mentioned, Darrow, Severo, Cassius, they're a set of brothers. We have Fa and Atlas. They believe themselves to be a set of brothers. We have Ajax and Lysander. They believe themselves to be a set of brothers. Ajax is dead, of course, but nonetheless, we respect the dead in the series. Like EO is respected as a part of a love triangle with Virginia and Darrow. Lysander and Cassius, in their own ways, like it's a father mentor, it's a mentor kind of relationship, but they're brothers. Uh, Diomedes and Lysander have sort of a brotherly-ish relationship where Lysander looks up to Diomedes. The brothers are a co-opted part of the story at this point. So brothers mean so many things that there's sort of this, I think there's like a quagmire of like a lack of clarity entering into this last part of like, what brothers are we talking about? Mm-hmm. And that quote, I think lends itself to a discussion, but I don't know if it lends itself to a solution. Fair. Where does that discussion lead us? Great question, PJ. Where does it lead us? What do you think of these sets of brothers? We Like, Cassius believes that Lysander is dead, and so he believes that his son, his brother, this person that he was, his mentee, is gone. Honorably so. We have Darrow, of whom is reflecting on his old brother, Tactus, of whom is dead and gone and is missing from this entire relationship. We have Lorne, 
of whom is dead and gone. We have all these different relationships that are viewed as gone. Okay. There are existing ones also that continue to like be pertinent. So, so I, I, don't know. I agree that I agree with these I relationships that you're bringing up. I don't agree with calling them brothers. Brother, Some like, of them brother are. I mean, like, not really brotherly. Like, I think Lysander might view Cassius in a brotherly way, but I don't think Cassius views Lysander in a brotherly sure. way. I think he sees okay. himself in some. I think he sees his relationship with with Lysander as more of a mentor or father figure given the amount of time they spent together and the ages that they were dealing with similar to Lorne that you brought up or well mm-hmm. Tactus maybe is the is the one that could fit there but I, again I'm I'm throwing I'm throwing the I know, darts at the I, board I, here for the most part to like try of to those, grab all of those here, other but arguments and brotherly quote-unquote relationships don't quite feel as solid and i i think truly this part is pointing out the the obvious brother relation brother-like relationships of darrow cassius severo within the archimedes okay I can right. I can understand I and it. see and believe in your arguments. Like I, I can I can take those arguments in for other characters. It it's not meant to be holistic, by no, the way. I, like it's I not know, intended. I, I think I'm, I'm throwing there are the a lot of other you, ways to describe those relationships that describe them better than brotherships. Like brother brotherhoods. If that makes sense. Absolutely. I totally get it. We are going to interrogate this, I think, more and more over the course of the next three weeks as we end this book, right? Like this is we're approaching the end and I broke up the end into three episodes versus Ben said it should be two, but I disagreed. So we are here. We're going to do it and we're going to chew on it slowly. So. I'm I'm excited to interrogate that, but I think brothers in particular are a thing that we have to like think about often and think about in the front of our minds as we interrogate this section. So everyone is someone's brother mm. in some regard inside of the series. So with that, let's get into chapter 77 proper, Darrow, Old Stoneside. We've taken up until this point five, seven shots technically apiece. Half but shots. roughly half. But so most of mine were like probably more plus like plus the pre quarters of a shot. Yeah, we're we are we're drunk. We're we're drunk. We're about to talk about some of the most philosophical shit in this series. Tossed. You know what I mean? So here want, we go. All want right. Me, want me to grab some <laughs> gummies? No, make it no, even better. You don't need to get a high in the middle of this. We don't need that added pressure. No one needs that. I don't need that. I love you. I don't but need no. that either. Yeah. I so, can do it. <laughs> as it goes. We called this out last week, but of course, we're on Europa, which is the Lawrence planet. And this chapter finds us contemplating quite a bit like Old Stoneside himself. 
Darrow echoes Lorne as Cass as he asks Cassius to walk with him. Harmonia is losing its war with the sea, which is another casual reminder of that old chestnut Lorne mentioned to us all the way back in Golden Sun, where he wishes for peace and that opportunity to retire from war. But the call rang out and wore him down until he was nothing, just like this old castle. He can't escape the inevitable tide of reality. So I think what this passage does is point out that he can't escape the inevitable tide of war. And for but lo- like, like it's, it's not necessarily just against gold or just against other people or just against the society or whatever. It can be against the elements themselves. If, if Lorne had somehow avoided joining Darrow's war, he would still be involved in a war and it'd be a war against the elements Mm -hmm. against against what they're seeing now on his island so no it's not as dire no it's not the same and there there are differences but i believe that this is meant to show the inevitability that Lorne would be facing war regardless of what Darrow did. Yeah. Uh, again, it's, it's ex it's not extra textual. It's like paratextual where it's like, this is sort of the reality that wears everyone down. And so we're, we're greeted with that fact that like Darrow is absent from home. And so his home is worn down because that's what happens. Time is in inevitable variable that like he cannot reckon with outside of immediately choosing to make a decision to be there or to not be there. And so this feels like it's just that moment for him in a big way, or like it's he's reflecting specifically in Lauren's shadow in what that looks like because he's able to see the detritus that is left by a choice that he's made himself. He's mirrored, but the hopes not to leave in his own wake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We we move then to the contemplation surrounding the election that continues and Cassius spirals in this moment in which they're walking. The Darrow asks if they can just continue with their dour trudge down memory lane. And it just they kind of make this like walk through the gardens and they're each like in their own lane, which is great. We do continue down that dour trudge in which we actually arrive at the site of Tactus's death, of which we haven't really physically contemplated for, I mean, since Golden Sun, by and large, where he might have lived for more, and one of the sadder moments of Darrow's life is he internally reflects upon it. Yeah. Darrow. Is that, that internal, moment, or was that out loud to Cassius? No, it was, it was out. It was internal. It was not out okay. loud. Okay. He's, he's thinking about it as he's moving through the rooms. But Darrow shaves himself in the mirror, in Lauren's mirror and and calls out a couple of different phrases. And then Cassie's follows suit, not necking himself, but making the same peerless beardless bit omnipresent. So yeah. Ziva to your point. Yeah. As much as I dislike Tactus, I dislike Tactus. He had potential if he wasn't trash, but yeah, yeah. unfortunately sometimes you're trash. I don't know. I don't know what to say. 
he I'm, I'm the rogue weirdo that doesn't believe in a tactus redemption arc that's interesting can you say more about that okay fund no because that you know, fe- that feels okay. that feels <laughs> counter to the way that you presented yourself on our show and what do you I mean? think it, that doesn't feel like that doesn't believe in a redemption arc no i i believe i believe that redemption exists for characters and needs to foundationally from like a writer's perspective in order to like make characters make bad characters believable but from the beginning tactus was a rapist he was he was an asshole and he was a he was beyond i i don't want to say beyond redemption quote is like the solidified thing but he had stretched so far beyond the bounds that it seemed as though the only whim that he adhered to was power. And mm-hmm. so as such, he listened to power and in his final moments was not seeking redemption so much as he was seeking absolution under a new, a new power figure. So like yeah. he was never actually changing. He was just surviving under whatever hand he could. And that's, in part because of his ra- I I don't I don't blame that upon Tactus as a character that is the way that he was raised that is his brothers by and large as we see in the series but like mm-hmm. that is my issue with Tactus is that I think a lot of people see like he has this chance of like turning around and turning the corner it's like no he was he was subsuming to the next power figure that he saw and and becoming one with the power vacuum my as far as I can tell, that feels yeah. not counter to, but the motivation that you've leaned upon feels different now than than it has in the past regarding Tactus's fate. I feel like that's pretty consistent. I feel like part of it, just for clarity's sake, is because you didn't have all the text. So in the that's moment, fair. I wasn't able that's to like, completely convey that. But... I don't think I've been differently textual about my opinion on Tactus. I think I've been pretty clear that I don't believe, regardless of circumstance, that he was chasing anything more than whoever held the leash, right? Like, he always was adherent to the leash. That is even a statement that happens inside of Golden Sun. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but there's a statement in Golden Sun that mirrors that. So I, I don't think that Tactus had as much capability to change as people lend him, if that makes sense. I also think I overlend Roke the capability because of the inverse problem, where Roke doesn't seem to respect the power so much as he does the existing hierarchy. So there's, like, differences there between the two. But regardless, it's more of an interpretation than anything else. Um, But bringing it back to this chapter, we're reflecting on Tactus's death. We reflected with Faw on what happened with him. And so there are some components that are kind of swirling around in our heads and we're, we're able to reinterrogate this. Darrow sees this as one of the lowest moments of his life. And I understand that. I believe that this is one of the people that he believed foundationally that he turned from an enemy into a friend. But I think at the same time, we can, we can look at that and be like, would he have still been a friend? Would he not have bent to like Apollonius's will? in iron gold like there there's so many questions that are still unanswered mm-hmm. now yeah. but that's how it goes so we'll see so zypris great point 
I think if Tactus had the opportunity, even using Darrow as a crutch or a guide, he could have fundamentally changed later down the line. I think so. I don't think you're that far off. Later down the line, for sure. Lorne is not making the wrong call in the moment, though, because he has seen enough of this type of person that he can make that judgment call. However, I am prone to believe that Lorne made the right judgment decision because he would have turned in a heartbeat on Darrow if power would have presented itself on a different side. He is a very power-motivated character because of his family, because of his lifestyle that's lived up until this point. So I think Tactus could potentially, in the very long run, end up turning around to the Republic side. However, I think that in the short term, he's going to just turn to whoever holds the Iron Gauntlet. Cool. Oh, man, it's... I mean, the shaving part's fun, though. Like, and they make a bit about, like, oh, yeah, it's just advertisement. That's why we're, like, stuck in sort of this old, like, shaving mantra, which is kind of, like, a fun yeah. bit instead of the whole chapter. It is fun to get um, those sort of ideological conversations about capitalism from Cassie's, <laughs> which which ultimately get cut off as as drivel by Darrow's monologue, like, internal monologue. That he isn't paying attention to. Well, it's especially funny just to reiterate because for Cassius, it is a talking point because he's so good at shaving himself that he doesn't cut himself. So he's used to even while chattering this into a he's he's turned this into a joke. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. It makes me want to try to try shaving with like a katana or something. Oh God! Yeah. Well, because I get they can't, it. They can't shave while it's in uh, whip form. So what mm-hmm. they're dealing with is a very, th- a very thin longsword mm-hmm. to shave their face. It's like 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 Jamie Lannister. In right. Yeah. No. It's it's no different than Jamie, which is also why it's like yeah. There's there's a whole bit there. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But it's kind of funny. I love that. So Darrow then reveals his intentions here that he wanted to apologize for the death of Alexander and how that was his responsibility in the end and how he feels that deeply emotional sort of resonating within his heart because he believed with Lorne that his son's daughters should go in different directions and that their sons and daughters should go in different directions. This is kind of a a sort of like off comment, but the fact that he believes that foundationally for those folks differs from the way that like Lysander is acting because he is the grandson of of Lorne. There's some dissonance there that is happening between between the the grandchildren, as it were. Mm-hmm. So kind of a, a fun thing to think about. But nonetheless, he apologizes for the fate of Alexander. We get as well here a dose of reflection between this pair of brothers as Cassius recounts that the stories of Dara have spread far. As we mentioned earlier, they're in the bars, they're in all these different places. And by and large, they're reflections of their teachers. We run down a short list and end with Lysander and the way that that reflects on Cassius as this teacher of honor. It's a great win for Cassius, I think. It is. Um, Sorely needed. At the very least, but 
it makes Lysander into a very complicated character for me, which is hard to wrestle with. But the way he's described and the way we've talked about the kind of person that he is, like we, we talked about in previous sections, previous books, we talked about him being this philosopher king and not living up to that ideal because he had philosopher king's not the right word for this but the man of action and and the idea that thinking something doesn't mean anything if you don't act upon it and now it feels like the way that we've been talking is the inverse a little bit because if your idea like your ideals without action don't mean anything Mm -hmm. conversely that should mean that your actions are the only thing that matter and if that's the case then lysander is very honorable and admirable right yeah i if if his actions are the only thing that matter which is what we've been talking about for books now Mm mm-hmm then what he's thinking doesn't matter at all. So much as it doesn't influence his actions, right? It doesn't, like there, though, there is Because what it, well, his but, actions are okay. what make him honorable. But but the okay. It is it is definitely a question of like the thoughts versus reality, right? Like and he does take action in reality. However, the intent of his action is still under question. Right? Like you can say, just as an equivalency just to like real quickly try to equate it. You can say, hey, we are arresting folks of whom sit on benches during weeknights because we believe that they're causing larger issues versus like, I hate those people that sit on benches, so we're going to arrest them. And they they have the same result physically in the space, but they have different ideals behind them, Right. And and that's what I think is the problem with Lysander is that he stands for something that appears to be honorable on the surface in his own justification of morality and honor. But he is pushing for something that is completely separate or different than his intent of honor. That's the problem. It's hypocrisy in, in a word. I can see where you're coming from. Intent matters. I haven't experienced i know actual I, I, I hypocrisy get from him yet though. well no but he, he has been hypocritic like hypocritic that's not right but he has been hypocritical at this point in the story he has often violated his ideals to ensure that he is successful his internal in monologue has betrayed his spoken which, which, and acted upon ideals but those yeah. ideals and acted upon ideals haven't changed. There, there have been moments of passion where he's betrayed them, but but that hasn't more than moments of passion. He's actively betraying. So, like the moment what actions with the has green, that happened? Like it, what, what? Point them out. The, moment the only one with I can think quadril- of is the one where that's, that's like, from- refers to the green as a bug. He, he, it's more than that. That is that is maybe the most exemplar example. But there are a number of different times that this happens throughout the series in which he thinks of like 
For instance, in the Colosseum in the beginning of this book, he thinks about the manipulation that he's pulling off as he steps into the stands and he disagrees with the idea of the showmanship and he's immediately a showman. Like he says, like being a showman is a false ideal as he like talks about what's his name? The the gold that I like that is kind of on his team it starts with a C. Cicero. Cicero. He he talks about like the fact that that's like a false ideal and it's not good. And then he immediately fucking does it by jumping into the stands and cheering on the grays. Like Lysander is nothing, especially in this novel, if not hypocritical. He often stands and walks all over himself in the way that he disagrees with the thoughts. But there is something to be said about understanding. So like the their ideals and there is reality and there is reckoning with those. However, he convinces himself that his ideals feed into the reality the way that he wants to. But there's a disingenuous connection there that he hasn't solved yet. Okay. He has sometimes and he can make that connection sometimes. He has, he has moved at the very least from a philosopher leader to a man of action. But it's a man of action that disagrees philosophically with his choices that's but, the issue with lysander but i i think that sh- like that's where my that's where my uh quandary comes in in that sure. we criticized him for his ideals in in comparison to his actions and now that his actions are in line with the ideals that he initially set forward. They're not, they're not in line with his, they're not actually in line with his ideals. They're in line with his result that he's looking for. Right. Like that's, he's, he's solving an equation to get to some, some like end result that doesn't actually involve the philosophical ideas. Right. So like he's seeking, We'll just use this as an example. He's seeking glory, right? But his route through glory is by dominance and by being an asshole. This is a vague example. And so, yes, in the long run, he might be remembered like Selenius is, and that will be the case. But he is in, he is forging that path through false means. And I think that's the issue. Like, he is, he is at mm-hmm. odds as it stands that's totally fair we're on this and lysander doesn't have a single fucking word this section which is crazy that we're talking about this right now but it does obviously route back to cassius Mm -hmm. so i get it i get that's totally fair um but i think there's there's also the problem of comparing to selenius which undoubtedly couldn't be held to his own standards now with with scrutiny i don't think selenius was held to standards no, I, that's no, he, that's that's the, the problem that's the right. problem is it's in an un, it's a, an entirely unattainable standard to hold yourself to correct yes and this is the way in, in which i think actually pierce embodies marcus aurelius so well through lysander is that Marcus Aurelius was a piece of shit. If totally. you look at him in history. Yeah. He was a bad warlord. Well, he was a good warlord. He was a very great warlord. Of he was a bad person. People. He was a great war leader. He was a great campaigner. He 
He had great ideas, but his reality versus what he thought didn't line up. And so he was constantly trying to reckon with those two things, which is what leads to meditations. And meditations is this idea on how to be a better person for him. And in some ways, in reality, that is him coping or copping out on making or doing the right thing, which is fascinating from a a textual comparison and the way that we potentially hold ourselves accountable in the real day as we think about philosophies and the way that they interact with us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like, if nothing else, this series inverts your relationship to some degree with some of those texts because it's like, hey, we know philosophically you and I understand that like these people were not fundamentally good people that we talk about. Seneca is maybe the best. Epicurus is definitely great. Um, Sorry, not Epicurus. Epictetus um, is definitely a great person of whom escaped slavery and like is a good example. But like Marcus Aurelius, dude is a genius of whom was a fucking no, barely better, barely better than Attila the Hun. Like, Mm -hmm. or Genghis Khan. Either way, long-winded way of saying, great to have good ideals. And it's great to be able to articulate them and put them on page. And you'll be immortalized for what you put on page. But that isn't your reality. And that, I think, is what's so tough to rationalize with Lysander, is I generally agree with a lot of his thoughts. But as as they don't pertain to the society and, like, some, you know, the bullshit. But philosophically, I agree with his thoughts there. And... But then you do the thing that isn't the thing, and I get real mad. I get real upset. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's where I get. Right. That's where it's an issue. All right. That was a lot. (laughs) But um, we then move to the sound of a calm chirp, and Lyria gets a new call sign in this moment, Eaglet 1 which is adorable and excellent. She's finally evolved past Truffle Pig as Daron Cassius kind of argue and agree on, on her new call sign. I absolutely she's adored Cassius's reaction to this. It's so cute. It's so cute. Like, yeah, it doesn't need to be immediate in the relationship, but like it's so like, a relationship in quotes by any stretch, but like it is so, it's so great. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I Oh, man. Oh, man. It's so nice. It's so nice. But we then get to a conversation between Volga and Dara that explains Volga's choices and where she stands in terms of the future that she's looking forward to with Dara. We then talk about the Ouroboros, which I assume we've talked about in a couple of other series. I think I assume you know what an Ouroboros is, so I don't need to explain but how it can be broken for them to leave this cycle and this loop. And the fact that they've, this like group has like left their women and abandoned them back home. I think it's important to note here. And Darrow does that. They've fully abandoned half of their culture on Mars. (sighs) Yeah. There's a lot going on here to react to regarding Lyria talking to Volga I really appreciate her ability to speak succinctly and efficiently and effectively. Similarly, Darrow is able to very effectively break down what's going on within the Obsidian um, and 
show Volga how her experience is desirable for them. Like it's it, it's it's unique and it's different and it's exactly what they don't want to have to relive. So it's cool seeing that. It is. It and it's it's very well done, I think on all accounts. It is honorific of Old Stoneside himself, especially as they interrogate the future of different peoples. Like it's it's great that this is happening in Harmonia, and I, I think everything that's associated there. So, right, yeah, there's there's a lot to that point. Volga says, "If we win, you must not forget us." She plows on as if he doesn't understand. This is what they fear more than anything, to be made fools of twice, that we will be used and spat out. We've seen the raw with you. We know what we know you want peace with them. The Rim will never forgive us for what we've done here. What will happen when they ask our heads from the Republic? And I noted here in this moment as I was reading this in the coffee shop, as we've talked about many times in the series, that my immediate note that I took down is this immediately me- makes me think in the future that the eyed me will be used on the obsidians first. This is this is foreshadowing in a way that obviously we aren't through the end of the book yet, but it makes me think about the next book and the implications therein for the future of the obsidian culture. Yeah, this is such a real possibility that had never crossed my mind until reading these notes and kind of kind of wild. It's yeah. Again, metatextual, but no, totally. Know. But that's something very real and something that has gone right. uh, under the waves for a long time. It's dramatic it? irony. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's good to bring it back up again. So, of course, the waves, as you're saying, are being sorted throughout this section. And I love the way that this chapter ends with the confirmation that Volga is to be crowned and that she is also responsible now for making those amends with the rim, leaving us in a better space than Darrow did all the way back in Morningstar. This is sort of the if we talk about this whole series as like an Ouroboros, it's a repeating cycle. This is Darrow also choosing actively to invest himself in breaking that cycle. He doesn't want the cycle of vengeance to continue. And so he's like, hey, it's your responsibility to do so. But here is what you need to do. Here are the things you need to interrogate. Here are the people you need to talk to to change this properly. Not dropping a fucking set of docks on a planet that kills millions. Right. Like that's a critical difference here that he he is willing to levy with experience, which again gets back to the beginning of this chapter, which is that mentor mentee sort of reality right and darrow pulls his best ephraim here rightfully without so. knowing ephraim at all yeah well done outside of just a brief mention in an elevator with trick and holiday yeah it's hard to he does i mean he's not he's not ephraim no of course not but he really does a good job of pulling on those strings Mm-hmm. So it's hard to not make those connections. Of course. All right, man. We made it. We've we've done it. <laughs> we we made it through our passage of stains. We we drank a lot. We did this live, 
and we worked through, in my opinion, one of my favorite sections of this novel. So good work all around. My my favorite <laughs> section that we've recorded. Period. I really liked last week, but I understand. No, or two weeks ago. I so did, I really so did I. I liked ago. it. Egg talk, but was great. I like this better. That's fair. If I, I had if, if I had to choose, this is the best section that we've read. Period. Well, so hot far. damn. I mean, okay, fine. Textually, I'll give you that. I'll give you the out. But yeah, what other? Sad. What else am I supposed to draw upon? Well, like conversation. Our conversation can be better than the text That's, from time to time, which is what I I'm guess pulling upon I, I'm thinking of my experience. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. Fine. Which is the whole point of this show. I'll give you your out. It's not an out. It's just no. It's not an out. You're right. Suddenly, suddenly, I'm a reader, which feels weird. You know, we've we've talked about this a couple of times, but your transition is important to recognize that it it's not that I'm like training. You know, it, it could be conceived that like us going through this is like training ignorance or like talking about ignorance in a way, and that we're we are so far past that at this point. This is mm-hmm. just co enjoyment and like co conversation about things so i'm not concerned about that anymore i should say but all right pj with that we are all done with this week's reading obviously we had a great time next week we will continue embarking upon part four brothers reading chapters 78 through 82 so next week real quick again three episodes to wrap up the end of this book We've got a wrap-up episode. We'll have like a brief postseason. We'll, we might take a week or two break, and then we'll engage either in the first law or a different, you know, temporary taster in the middle. So, very excited. We have a number of short pours that should be coming out that will be will be coming out in the next week, including The Sunlit Man and Daisy Jones Part 2, which I'm really excited about. Mm-hmm. We had so many issues with that episode, one way or another. We did it live. We did it in person. PJ's computer fell asleep. We then re-edited it to make it work. And it's it's been a lot. But it's, it's happening. It's good. Probably so, been the most be in-depth recording we've had probably on this show. What what's so crazy is that it was the most in-depth from our like emotional perspective of the way that we love that. And then at the same time, we've worked so hard <laughs> to make it work on the back end, which yeah. is just such a such a nightmare to Ziva's point of whom sponsored the episode, just like the band. We worked very hard to make it a reality. <laughs> so uh, Ziva is the one that sponsored that, yes. that recording. So thank Set you, Ziva. I am so sorry that it's taken so long for it to come out. Yeah, it's um, like four months. <laughs> yeah, it's been too long. Well, you were, you were, we recorded it while you were this. here. No, 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 I know. But when was that? Was that August? September. It was August, right? Or maybe we recorded. No, I think it was August. August. I don't I think it was August. Remember. You were yeah. here a lot. You yeah. were gone for a I think long it was August. <laughs> I know. I was gone from home. Yeah. Next week, once more, a reminder. We'll continue part four, brothers, reading chapter 78 through 82. And that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew for helping. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for keeping our show's lights on, Tim and Andrew. You, dear listener, can find our shit in the show notes where you can find the 
previous episodes, Patreon, <laughs> websites, social media. You'd accounts. swear we had this written out, but you know, we just kind of make it up each time. Oh, man. <laughs> convenient. Okay. We have it written out. I just don't know where it is. No, on we don't. Page. PJ, we don't have it written out. It's, no. We have uh-uh. we have a no. skeleton. Leave a five star review. And if you don't leave a five star review, we will turn you into a skeleton of our outline, which is to say, fleshed out but not enough to be breathing it still requires some improv to survive additionally we will ferment you into a liquor that we will drink unceremoniously throughout as a part of the passage of states (laughs) recording of the passage of states oh god this has been an episode all Um, right beyond that you can find us we only care about x now we're now (laughs) no exclusively about x at all I made one joke on X this week, and it was pretty funny. And if you're still on X, go like that joke. It was at Brandon Sanderson. It was very funny. We are not otherwise on X um, because Elon Musk is a piece of shit, frankly. <laughs> so mean... with that, I don't object to my own statement. That's no, I mean, that's fine. It came out as a pretty hardcore anti-Semite but... in the last week. So Yeah, yeah, but he's not actually in any sort of position to influence X at this point, right? No, he is absolutely. What do you mean? He owns it. It's his. He is. He is operationally not the CEO. No, he has not fully handed off the power. CEO. He's not like he's, he has, he is also president of the board and he also is like director of product or some bullshit like that. Absolutely not. I do not support. I do not recommend. We have talked. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a moment, take a stance. Do not go on X. Period. I, I go on X there for a long time. Strictly, strictly because I have existing relationships and we have existing relationships as a part of our podcast that have been beneficial to us on X. That is the only reason that we log in at this point at all. Fuck I, Twitter. Fuck X. I, I thought things were getting better because he had passed no. off things. No, they've okay. only gotten worse and he has only gotten worse. Sounds good. I And and you're ignorant to that. And so I, I am. I don't I don't like this social is, media. This is my own so. vitriol. This is my own vitriol not aimed at you. This is aimed at the situation. Yeah, but absolutely not. Fuck absolutely not. Not a thing. Fuck Elon Musk. But you can find us on Threads and Blue Sky. I plan on being a little bit more active on Threads and or Blue Sky, depending on which lands I were already a little bit more active on threads. We'll see again, as PJ mentioned, we aren't social media addicts by any stretch of the imagination, but we are there occasionally. So you can find us there. And if you have questions or thoughts or ideas, send them to us there. Um, we also are on Instagram and Reddit. Of course, you can send us email at words and whiskey show gmail.com. Join our Patreon to be a part of this live episode and at least one a month that we do. Otherwise, um, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. And we, had, I did mention this earlier, but we've changes coming to that to simplify it all down pretty soon. We've discussed this many a time. Don't you dare raise your eyebrow at me. But we're we're no, doing I'm, that. I'm, we're I'm we're committing to the changes. So those are oh, okay. All right. <laughs> it's just it seemed a little bit more, more. Anyway, we also still have t-shirts on T Public. I know that's been a bit, but like that's still the gift. Understand our t-shirt guy moved, and then he moved again. Now he lives in Indiana and he's busy. He also edits our audio. So we 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 can only ask so much. I would but, uh, needless to say. 
to call upon anybody listening that wants to participate in the passage of stains to send us a picture on any sort of social media or on our email of the bottles that you have lined up for what you're Ooh, take part. Take doing. part. I, I, would, I, would, I would love a list of bottles that encompass the 14 colors. Because yeah. like, you don't have to do what them. We put, what we put together was very fast. It was scattered. Like, I got, I got 30 home minutes. 40 minutes before we were supposed to start reco- recording. And in that time, we assembled this idea. Assembled this, this, this list. So I'm sure we could make it even better. So if you've got a better list of 14 liquors for shots for the passage of stains, I would love to see them. So say we all. All right. With that, that's the end of our episode. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.